In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, our God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, our comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, our treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, our good one. Sit down. We have now come to part four of the life of St. Nectarius. Uh, so with God's help, we've done uh, the first part, which was his early life up to his ordination and when he was exiled from Egypt, when he was slandered. Part two was when he went to Athens and he couldn't find work. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't acknowledge him as a bishop and he was persecuted and still they continued the slander, mostly from clergy. Part three, which was last uh, time, which was when the saint uh, found a monastery together with some nuns on the island of Elena, and his end, his last years there, where he suffered a lot continually from slander, persecution, and at the end, even sickness. And that's where I left off last time where he passed away, but I'll go back a little bit. So from the last talk, we remember that towards the end of St. Lactarius' life, one or two years before, uh, the doctor came to the convent to examine the holy Nectarius who was suffering from excruciating pain. In other words, uh, well, that came from chronic prostatitis. Very, very painful. The doctor said that he needed to be immediately admitted into a hospital that has a urology, a urology department. Of course, now all hospitals have that, but some back in those days didn't. He also said that the Holy Bishop would probably require surgery and therapy. And the saint responded, we shall see if it's God's will. Just on that, we can speak all night for four hours. Just on that part. We shall see if it's God's will. And how many of us actually even seek God's will in our life. Some of us don't know how to do that. Some of us don't want to know. Some of us don't want to know God's will. In, in my years as a priest, I've come across a lot of people who actually have admitted that they say, I don't want to know God's will. I don't want to know God's will with marriage. I don't want to know with God's will with anything at all. And usually... If not, well, no, sorry, those people, not usually, those people are very miserable souls. Where if we do not seek God's will in our lives, that means there's something wrong with our spiritual life. Now, does that mean that someone automatically, that does that mean that someone automatically gets to, that, to the stage of having that virtue? And the answer is no. It takes many, many years of spiritual struggle to start to uh, have the faith to seek God's will and to uh, experience it in our lives. It takes a while. It takes many, many years. Most of the time, even if someone's been in the church for many years, they kick. What does kick mean? Like a child, when, you, when the child... When, they, when you take a child to a shop and it wants this, it wants that, you don't give it to him or her, and then the child falls on the ground and kicks. That's in the, for a child. But we, as Orthodox Christians, we also kick. 
Even though the saint of God was reluctant for some months to receive medical treatment, he finally agreed to go to a hospital in Athens. Why did he change his mind? Well, because he was a bit reluctant. He said, maybe, if it's God's will, etc. Why? Now, some versions of his life say that it was because the nuns persisted. They were saying, you know, your eminence, please, please go. You have to go and get medical treatment. But it would seem that after all his prayers, because he continually prayed for God's will in all aspects of his life, in every step that he took, that's the sign of a holy person. It's God's, if it's uh, whatever is God's will. See, when you go for advice to an elder, you can always tell a true elder to an imposter. The true elder always, so when you go up to an elder and ask for advice, the elder's not forceful. So he, unless it's something to do with sin. Like if a woman goes up and says, I want to do an abortion, then yes, he'll be forceful. But if it's, say, a something of what should I do? Should I get a job there? Should I move to America? Should I marry this person? The elders, um, unless some exceptional circumstance where God reveals, which is very rare, if you even read the lives of saints, you see that not always the, elder, the, the elders did not always know God's will directly. Sometimes you read in the same sermon of Sarov and the Optin elders that are enlightened. But that was not all the time. In general, the elders would say, pray. The elders would say, I will pray for you, whatever God will show you, etc. See, that freedom. I remember when I used to, when I visited some uh, elders back in my earlier years in, on Manathos and in, around Greece, and I would ask them a question, which was a serious question, and then they would, I would say, oh, you know, I went and asked such and such a guy, oh, what did he say? What, what did he say? Oh, okay. And they want to know, what did the other person say? They've got that humility, because to know God's will in every circumstance is not something which is given even to the saints. Because we also notice that St. Nectarius, a lot of times, wasn't sure when that rude student came to the monastery and said to him, what are you doing here? A great educated man. And you're here digging in the garden, you're sweating, you're filthy, and that's not for you. And the elder, was St. Nectarius, was so knocked out from his rudeness that he went and prayed that night and he was overcome with doubt. And he had doubt and said, perhaps I shouldn't be here. Perhaps I should be in the world preaching to the people. He started to doubt. If you read the lives of saints very carefully, there were some times when it was for sure, but most of the time the saints were continually seeking God's will. And if they did that, that's what we should do. I don't like when people say, uh, that sign happened, so that's God's will for me to do that. And that happened, and that's God's will to do that. And everything that happens is God's will. And you know, when you do that, then the devil starts to play around with you, starts playing with your mind, and makes you go crazy. And that's why a lot of people actually go mental, because they look at everything and go, oh, the phone rang, I was thinking of that person, that means it's God's will for me to go there, to do this, to do that. Oh, it just, that's, that's just like um, things that are 
suitable for a psychiatric hospital, not for an Orthodox Christian. So, uh, he, he always would seek God's will in everything, and I believe when you read the, the, um, his life, you will notice that he was enlightened to go to Athens for reasons we will see further on. God wanted him to go to Athens, even though we will see that he never, well, we'll see in a minute, they never even had the operation, nor was he given any treatment. So why go? The Holy Nectarius ne never ended up having an operation. The doctors could see that he was approaching his end. He was to spend 50 pain-filled days in the hospital. After 50 days, on the 8th of November, the feast day of Archangel Michael and all the holy angels, the Holy Nectarius took his last breath and surrendered his holy soul in peace and in prayer into the hands of God. Suddenly... A sweet-smelling fragrance filled the room and the whole hospital so that all the patients, nurses and doctors wondered where the beautiful fragrance was coming from. His old woolen undershirt, because as you know, they've got to undress him and etc. When he, his old woolen undershirt, what we call the singlet here, was removed and placed on the next bed where a paralysed man was lying. Suddenly... He stood up, walked around the room, crossed himself and shouted, I am cured, I can walk. Glory to God, the undershirt has miraculous power. Well, this was all in the last talk. So that was the first miracle, or the second actually, the second miracle after the death of St. Nectarius. The first one, we can call it a sign, was the more, more so a sign, was that the, his body was fragrant very strong fragrant smell and the second and then the miracle was that the paralyzed man got better shortly after this the relics of saint nectarius were removed from the hospital room it is interesting it is interesting to note that the sweet smelling fragrance which the relics of saint nectarius emitted were so strong that the room could not be used for many days even though the windows were left open so powerful was the smell strong the hospital room that St Nectarius reposed in was later made into a chapel. So today, that hospital um, has a chapel, well, that chapel is where St Nectarius reposed. Now, I use the word here, relics, and I will be using the word relics continually through the talk. So wouldn't it be good for us to know what exactly does the word relics mean? Because people think it means... what. The body of a saint? Does it mean the bones of the saint? What, what does it mean? So, in Greek, the word relics is talipsana. In Slavonic, I got it here, which I was going to ask you, I was going to ring you and ask you, but I forgot. Mo, mos, moschi? How do you say it? Moshi. Loud? Moshi. Moshi. Is that right? Kind of. Sorry about that. And in, and in Latin, which I can't say, reliquiae or something like that, so obviously the word relics comes from the Latin. Each of these means the remains or what is left. So relics, the word relics refers not only to the bodies of saints, but in general the bodies of the reposed. In the Orthodox funeral service, 
the remains of the, of the departed faithful are referred to as relics. So in the service book, for example, it says, quote, and taking the relics of the repose, we go out of the church. So we don't just call relics, lipsana, as we say, or the, or the Slavonic word, um, referring to saints, they refer to orthodox, to the bodies even of orthodox Christians that have departed this life. Because it means what remains. So people get a bit mixed up. So we have the relic of a person who just died. Is he holy? We don't know. But how do we differentiate? We hope that he's holy. But how do we make the difference? Those of the saints are called holy relics. Now we hope that the body of the Christian that also died is holy and that's why in Orthodox funerals we kiss the body as we would kiss the body of a saint because we are assuming that that person died righteously and has been saved. So that's why we kiss the relics. However, a problem occurs when the person didn't really have a Christian life because the prayers of the church don't make any sense. So where the prayers of the church say, say there, we, we read, the priest reads, um, and your servant that has kept the orthodox faith and confessed Father, Son and Holy Spirit onto his dying breath, grant rest, O Lord, with the souls of the righteous, etc. But what happens if the person never even went to church? Now, of course, he might have repented a minute before he died. That's, we don't know. Maybe he reconciled with God before he died and we don't know that. And that's why, in general, the church tends to bury them. When someone commits suicide, they don't bury them unless they're mentally ill. Anyway, so the point is that relics refers to the saints, but also all Orthodox Christians. The bodies of Christians who have lived a righteous life or who have become holy through receiving a martyr's death are worthy of special veneration and honour. That's why I'm saying, if a person's lived a Christian life, dies in repentance, dies with faith in God as, as Trinity, he, uh, he's an Orthodox Christian, he communes, confesses, etc., then obviously that, would, that person would be worthy to venerate, um, one can say, because... We believe that when someone does that, they are, they've been saved. Well, we hope. That, that's why we say, grant rest, O Lord, to the souls. In, why, do we, why? why is the body so special? See, in the Old Testament, the body was looked at as dirty, bad. If you touch it, you, you know, you're not, I don't know, it's all these, they had all these rules in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see a different attitude towards the body. Why? Well, St. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So St. Paul says that when we receive the Holy Spirit through baptism and later on through Holy Communion and through practicing the commandments, etc., we, our bodies, become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the body is sanctified. In the morning... So we go back to the life now. In the morning, the saints' relics were placed in a simple wooden coffin 
and then transported by hearse from the hospital in Athens to the Cathedral of the Holy Trinity in Piraeus. They were going to Piraeus because that's the port and they were going to take the saint on the boat by ferry over to the island, Aegina, which is a few hours away. It was noon and the cathedral was closed so the holy relics were placed in... Or the holy relics were placed in front of the cathedral. By this time, word had spread throughout Athens and Piraeus that the holy metropolitan of Pentapolis Nectarius, the former dean of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School, had reposed. So news spread everywhere and people were flocking to the port of Piraeus so they can venerate as is an orthodox practice, the relics of the reposed. Whether they thought he was holy, maybe they thought he was blessed, we don't, don't know everyone's mind, but let's have a look. Many of the faithful came to the cathedral to order, in order to venerate the relics of the newly de- reposed Nectarius. But the coffin was closed. But then they decided to open the coffin so people can venerate, because not all those people will be able to go to to be there for the funeral. Now we'll see why it was God's will for him to go to Athens, to the hospital, even at the end. There was no operation and no treatment and he died there. One would think, wouldn't it be better for him to die in his monastery amongst the nuns? Why did God allow him to go to Athens into a hospital and to die in the hospital and not in his monastery. That's what we would think would be God's will. But this is what what I'm saying. We don't know God's will a lot of times and that's why um, this 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 is a very good example. Now we'll see why God allowed it. Apart from the fact that the body gave off fragrance, emitted fragrance in the hospital, Apart from the fact, which was the miracle of the paralysed man that was, couldn't walk, and he got up, now we're going to see something else that happened, because only some people saw that. Now we have all the people that are present, sorry, so many people present in, 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 the, in front of, uh, that, that have come to, the, to, to um, farewell the Holy Nectarius in front of the cathedral, and there was a lot of them. When the coffin was opened, the faithful noticed in amazement that the saint's hair and beard were filled with fragrant myrrh. The the hair and the beard were saturated, was dripping with holy myrrh. The, The people used handkerchiefs and cotton to soak up some of this fragrant myrrh as a blessing. So to the amazement of people, as soon as they saw, they approached the coffin and it was drenched. His his beard, the saint's hair, was drenched with this fragrant myrrh, which is a characteristic of orthodox saints. This also comes from bones as well. But more about that later. So... That shows why it was God's will for him to go to hospital because God wanted him to die 
in to in Athens, in Athens, so that all the people will see him. Who to see who? To see the one who was persecuted by the bishops, the one who was disdained, the one that couldn't even get a job and he had to beg to get a job as a preacher, which anyone can do in Greece, even a lay person, if they've got some knowledge. The one who they slandered, the one who they said all filthy things about him, the one who was basically... Uh, the, um, it says there in his life that that had never happened before. Actually, each bishop belongs to some church. St Nectarius belonged to no church because Alexandria, the Church of Alexandria in Egypt, which where, where, where there was Greek Orthodox, etc., they said he doesn't belong to us. Greece said he doesn't belong to us. So he was this bishop without a diocese and that was very painful for him. So this ignored person, this slandered person, was now at the port of Piraeus where there was thousands of people coming from all of Athens and Piraeus to, and all of a sudden God justified his saint because Christ himself said, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are those when people say all manner of evil against you falsely for my namesake. That's what Christ said. And there it is. Was he slandered? Yes. Was he persecuted? Yes. So God's, Christ's words show the truth. But we'll see on. And the, after the faithful had venerated the relics for a few hours, the coffin was carried back to the hearse. The, the, the men that carried the coffin called out, he's weightless. He is light as a feather. The hearse then drove to the port of Piraeus and the coffin was placed aboard the ferry boat that was travelling to Aegina. On the way to Aegina, the ferry boat flew its flag at half-mast, halfway down, to indicate that someone important had passed away. So when the men were carrying the coffin, they said it doesn't weigh anything. That's another sign. And off, they put him onto the boat. The ferry boat finally arrived at the town of Eyna, on the island there where the town is, when many, where many were waiting in mourning to greet the wonder worker and protector of their island. Those waiting included the sisters of the convent and many of the clergy and the monastics of the island. If you remember from the previous talk, some clergy were jealous of him. They didn't like the saint because people were going to him to do services like memorial prayers, panahiras as we say, or malebans, and uh, people were going to him. They weren't going to them. They got upset because they were losing business, because they were business priests. There's a few of them still around. So, but we'll leave them in God's hands. So we go on to the next thing. So I'm sorry, sorry, I wonder whether they were there as well. Maybe they repented. The coffin needed to be carried to the convent by foot, which was to take a few hours. Remember, from the previous talks, there was no road. There is one now, but there was no road then. There was just a track, like what we call a donkey track. 
And so they had to carry, whenever they went there, in, they had to use donkeys or walk. If you remember the saint, when he was called by the Metropolitan of Athens in the last talk, he had to come down by donkey two hours and back up again. And because he had prostatitis, it was in pain. That's all in the previous talk. So we go on. The coffin needed to be carried at the convent by foot, which was to take a few hours. A crowd of about 200 men began to argue over who would have the honour of carrying the saint's coffin. The police had to settle them down and work out a system in which all of them would have a turn to carry the coffin. Maybe one can say, oh, well, they were just keen. They wanted to have the blessing to carry the saint, but the way that they do it is um, Mediterranean. The police had to settle down and work out a system. We've said that. During the procession, all the churches were solemnly ringing their bells, like Good Friday, ding, ding, slowly... Uh, many of the faithful burned incense and threw flowers on the road as the coffin passed by their houses or if they're in the street. Those whose turn it was to carry the coffin would say in amazement that it was weightless. So they also said that the coffin didn't weigh anything. The relics finally arrived at the convent. In order to console the multitude who were very upset the and depressed, because a lot of people were upset that the saint had departed. The blind abbess Xenia, if you remember that that was his, one of his first nuns, that she said the following, her exact, exact words. She said, our father is not dead. In fact, he is alive and can see us. He's praying for us tonight. Our, our convent will prosper and the Lord will not leave us. This is something that he always said when he was with us. He prophesied that, and now she's quoting, the Abbas Ksenia is quoting the saint. The saint said, in this isolated place, in a few years, large number of people will come here in automobiles, bringing as offerings gold and large candles, end quote. So that's what the saint said. Because remember, that they were up there in the desert up there was a bit like there was very hard to get there, as I said, and they were like quite quite um, desolate area. He said that this is that it won't be like that in a few years' time. He said it's going to be a lot of people coming in, in cars, buses, etc., and bringing gold and large candles. Now, what does she say? I confess, says the blessed, said the Ksenia, that we were surprised in our ignorance and in our ignorance doubted this. In fact, we're often concerned that his eminence had lost his mind. Do not cry because Egina and Greece have acquired a saint who will pray for us. So she and the nuns often thought when he was saying those things that he had maybe from his sickness that he had lost his mind because he was saying things like this is going to have a lot of cars coming here and people bringing large candles and gold. They didn't know what he was talking about. And she said, don't cry because Egina and Greece have acquired a saint who will pray for us. Remember, I shouldn't, it's more towards the end, but the biggest place of pilgrimage in Greece is the monastery of St. Nectarius. That's the biggest place of pilgrimage. Nowhere else do as many people go as they do to Egina, to St. Nectarius' monastery. Anyway, so obviously he prophesied, and people understood it later on. A lot of prophecies are understood later on 
after the repose of the saint. We've done a lot about these prophets, I think, in the past. The rule, the golden rule is, don't believe prophecies. I'll tell you a prophecy. Sorry, I'm going to make an exception. I'll tell you a prophecy that you should listen to and I'm going to prophesy tonight, right? Now, some of you might think that you will actually confirm that I'm deceived. We'll see. The prophecy that I say tonight is that all of us will die one day and we will give word and we will be judged. That's what the Holy Fathers say. When Holy Fathers were asked about when's the end of the world or other things like that, they all reply, I don't know when the end of the world is, my child, but what I do know is that we will all die and we will all give word and that we need to be ready to stand in front of the dread judgment seat with good works and repentance. That's the prophecy that we should know. Um, the relics were left in the convent's church for three days and three nights so that the many people could come and venerate. During these days, the relics continued to produce fragrant myrrh. One of the nuns was very worried that the saint's body would begin to smell. She told this to the abbess. That night, Saint Nectarius appeared to her in a dream and reprimanded her for her, for her unbelief because she thought three days the body's going to smell. She didn't understand properly, even though she had heard and she saw the miracles, she saw the fragrance, but people still lack faith sometimes. And she obviously did, and the saint appeared to her and said, That's, you know, don't believe that. The funeral service was conducted by an elderly holy priest monk, Father Savas, who was staying at the convent at the time. And I will talk about him later on because he's very important. He did the service. Before the coffin was closed, flowers from the lemon trees that the saint himself had planted were placed in the coffin. That's significant, as we'll see later on. The saint was buried with great solemnity between the convent's church and a pine tree. So remember that there was an existing old church there because this was a ruined convent. Then the saint built, uh, fixed it up and that was their church, which was, I sent it to you last night by email. You saw the, where the saint used to serve. Um, that's the original uh, church that was built and consecrated in 1908 and given the name Holy Trinity. The, uh, the, the building started, the building of it, the laying of the stone was 1906 and the church was finished two years later in 1908. There's a plaque which says that. The Holy Nectarius, etc., etc., 1906, the cornerstone, which he, he performed the service, 1908 was the consecration when the church is sanctified. And um, that's, a, there, that's where the... Um, that's the church. And next to the church, a little bit further off, is a pine tree. Now, some years before, so, so that's, they buried him between the church and this pine tree. There's a story behind this pine tree and the burial place of St. Nectarius, which I'm going to go through now. Some years before the women came to live at Xanthos, which is the place where the convent is, if you remember, they found the place and then St. Nectarius came and he liked it 
and he blessed it and he said, this is the place that will become the future convent for these girls that were interested in becoming monastics. So, but before they came there, there was an old woman named Anastasia who lived at the site of the ruined convent before they came. A few metres from the old church was a pine tree that had been there for some years. One day she decided, Anastasia decided, before the nuns came, before St Nectarius came, one day she decided to replant the pine tree closer to the church. She wanted to pull it out the tree and put it there, closer. As she dug the new spot, she heard a voice saying, not here, leave some room for a grave. The nun was frightened by the voice and looked around to see who it was. Seeing no one, she continued to dig the hole. To her surprise, she heard the voice again, but this time louder, leave some room for a grave. Now again, now we come to voices. What's, what have I taught you before? What do the fathers teach? You ignore voices. Okay, she heard this voice. Did anything happen? Was there some significance? Did people hear about it and say there was a voice on air, you know, and because of that we have to do this and this now? There's no, there's, no, there's no significance until later. Later it makes sense. Not at the time. We'll see. We'll go on. Leave some room for a grave. Even though she was so shocked, she once again continued to dig the hole. Suddenly, the shovel that she was using flew out of her hands and landed a few metres away, making a hole in the ground. She thought to herself that this was a sign that the tree was to be replanted on this particular spot in order to leave room for her grave. She actually thought that she interpreted the whole thing as being, this is where God wants me to be buried. So the tree was, let's just say, here's the church, the tree's over here, she wanted to put the tree right next to the church. Then all these things happened and therefore she put it away a bit from the church to leave enough room for a grave. And those of you who got the pictures last night would have seen the pine tree near the chapel of the... Of the so they made, a, um, they made a little chapel over the grave. And that tree there, that's where they've got a little sign there, that's the tree that had the miracle happen. It all made sense later. So I don't want you later on to say, look, uh, I know a person that goes to church and while he was gardening, he heard a voice and the voice said to do something and from that it means that we have to jump off cliffs because that's what people do. They listen to these things, become deceived like in Russia when the, when the schism happened with the old believers, etc., and they were, they were into these signs. And the, some of them interpreted the saying, OK, the patriarch of Russia is, um, is an antichrist. They thought he was the antichrist because he changed some things in the books. And uh, these people were getting all these messages that were telling them to jump off cliffs or kill their family because uh, the antichrist doesn't get them and things like that. And they, they, they were killing themselves, burying themselves, etc. This is what happens when we take notice of voices and visions, etc. Here, it made sense later. She thought to herself that it was for herself. Three weeks after the repose of St Nectarius, um, Theocritus once again became metropolitan of Athens, 
while Miletius became Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, some of you might not remember, uh, or you weren't here, but Theocritus was the bishop who was the metropolitan who persecuted the saint, would not give, would not recognise the monastery, the convent. And this made St Nectarius worried because he wanted it to be under the sister's name. It was under his personal name because they wouldn't give, they wouldn't recognise. There was all these troubles, as you remember from the last talk. Anyway, they got rid of him um, because he got mixed up in politics. Uh, so he, who accused the saint for breaking canons, was later on accused for breaking canons because he got mixed up in politics. Clergy should never get mixed up in politics. It's canons which say that. He got mixed up with politics and he was got, he, they got rid of him and in his place they put the, another one which was called Miletios and he also persecuted to some degree St Nectarius as well. It's all in the previous talk. Anyway, now what happened was that Miletios was made Patriarch of Constantinople and Theocritus was put back on the throne. So the nuns were concerned over whether Metropolitan Theocritus would persecute the convent again. They were worried, as he did when St Nectarius was alive. So that made them have anxiety and they were very worried because he really did a lot of damage to the, um, uh, in some ways, even though later on it all came out for the better. But it's very hard to go through. We remember the saint used to be uh, devastated over what he did because the man told him, I will recognise the convent, but later on he goes, I never said that. The man sends over myrrh so that the church can be consecrated. Later on he said, why did you consecrate it? Who told you to consecrate it? So all these mad things were occurring and that, would, that was wounding the saint. It was a big cross that he carried. And a lot of times he, would have to, he, he, was, he had to be calm so not to upset the nuns who, as women, tend to panic more. Do I have to get a, um, a barrier up? <laughs> so I won't get anything thrown at me? I'm just like, it's very, ooh, you know, it's a big, big sensitive topic. Um, there's this new movement now, you see. Men and women are the same. They, they did that. They applied that into the schools. And now they've got children that are very confused about their, who, what they are, what sex they are, etc. So it's just um, silly. But let's, here, we're not here to be politically correct. We're not, I'm not interested in that. So the truth of the matter is women tend to be more, they panic more more emotional, etc. Does that mean that they're worse than men? No, that's their characteristics. Men have other characteristics. Women can breastfeed. Men can't. Women can, 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 can give birth. Men can't. There's all these different things. We can't make everyone the same. I don't know. I read once in a book something, which I want to share with you. And No, so I heard it in a talk. I met someone in America, uh, a preacher there, and he said that it's a sin... This is a sin when women want to be the same as men because that's what it's all about. When you watch it, whether you watch it on the television, for those of you who unfortunately still watch it, or wherever, it's always the same thing. There's this mania of women saying, I can do whatever men can do, but why do you have to do it? And how come we don't hear men saying that? Just... Um 
that's what the devil wants. It's a demonic teaching. And because of that, the families have fallen apart. Everything's fallen apart in society. See? They say women's lib have done a lot. Yes, they've done some good, equal pay, there's nothing wrong with that, all these other things. But they've also done a lot of bad. And one of the biggest things they've done is they've destroyed the family. And there's one other thing I want to say is that these abortion clinics, for example, where women are basically forced, they're supposed to be parent, um, they're supposed to be family planning. But women themselves have confessed that when they went there, they were only given one option and they were forced to have abortion. So I tell you, a lot of women themselves are saying that the biggest enemy against women are, who knows, women, not the men. A lot of times there are some men that are bad. But in general, they themselves are the ones who do a lot of this damage. And the women themselves are saying that, and you're watching a lot in current affairs and things like that, where they're saying that, I don't want to be like that, I don't want to do that, and they're forced. They're not allowed to have a difference of opinion. Anyway, so, the saint would try to comfort the, the, the nuns because they were upset over this persecution. One thing I didn't mention in the last talk is that towards the end, the saint had acquired so much grace, he had progressed so much, that when he was persecuted earlier on in his life, he was wounded, and he would say that, I'm upset that he was very, very cut. But towards the end, when the police came to the convent and were accusing him, and it says there that when they stormed into his office, he just sat there calm, that's because he had, he had um, acquired the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, he, was, he actually became a vessel of the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't upset like he was earlier on. It shows the progression of the, of the saint. So I just forgot about that in the last talk. Despite the fear this caused, the sisterhood continued to mourn the loss of their spiritual father and carried on with their monastic life under Abbas Xenia. So yes, they were scared what the new bishop's going to do, the new metropolitan but, and they were upset that they lost their spiritual father. But at the same time, they continued, like the saint said, continue your spiritual life. I mentioned that in the previous talks. Whatever happens, this is advice now for all of us, whatever happens in our life, we keep going on our spiritual life. We keep our prayers, we keep confession, we keep communion, we keep our, our lives reading we keep our doing the, the, our spiritual struggle. A lot of people, when, as soon as there's problems in their life, which shows whether they're Christian or not, they actually uh, begin to move away from the church instead of coming more to the church because they don't understand, because they think that spiritual life is something in their head, in their fantasy, but spiritual life is united with our everyday life. And they don't know that. They, they, don't, they don't experience that. So what they do is as soon as problems happen in their life, they separate, that's problems, and my spiritual life is over here, and they're separate. And what happens is that this overwhelms, that their, their problems in their life over, become so overwhelming 
that slowly, slowly they fall away from the church. The abbess kept strict fasts and also prayed day and night. Like her spiritual father, St Nectarius, she composed various hymns. Remember he put hymns together? One of the famous ones he put together was the one that we sing, Agni Parthen in Greek, Rejoice, which we sing a lot of times. It's very famous. It's been translated into many languages. Beautiful um, hymn to the Mother of God. The saint was, was very devoted to the Mother of God. Every time he had problems, he would run to the Mother of God. He would do a meleben, or paraklis, we say in Greek, to the Mother of God. Day by day, Abbas Ksenia was becoming more and more holy. The saint would often appear to the nuns in order to guide them in their struggles in the same way they, he did while he was alive. So we Orthodox Christians, in general, the rule is we do not believe in visions. We say, you don't believe when you smell things. We don't believe, like fragrances, we don't believe when we see things. We don't believe dreams. We don't believe prophecies. We don't, we don't, we, these things are very dangerous. Now, in this case, it's in within the life of saint and we will see that this is a true um, saint and these things are exceptions. Someone said to me the other day, someone rang up and said, have you ever seen a vision? I said to them, I pray I never see visions. I don't want to smell anything. I don't want to have dreams. I don't want any of that stuff. Because those who did see those things were tricked by the devil because he makes false ones. Or even if they were real, a real dream or a real vision, they fell into pride. And that's why the saints would run away from these things. They didn't, they didn't want them. I've said that in previous talks. But today it's all the time. Visions and dreams. Everyone's seen visions. Everyone's seen dreams. Everyone smells everything. And that's why we have a mess in the Orthodox Church. And that's why the devil's having a party because he tricks people with these stupidities. Now, this is a real one. So, he would, the saint would often appear to the nuns in order to guide them in their struggles in the same way he did while he was alive. In particular, he would frequently appear to the blind Abbas Ksenia. They would discuss all the matters that were troubling her, issues concerning the convent and the problems that the Orthodox Church was undergoing at the time. For example, the fact that those who were ruling Greece were unbelievers and hostile to orthodoxy. Those who were ruling Greece meant the politicians and they were hostile as it says here, to orthodoxy, and they were persecuting the church in a lot of ways. And they would discuss those things. Another great concern was whether Metropolitan Theoklitos, as I said before, would continue to persecute the monastery, and that the convent had not been officially recognised. The abbess discussed with the saint because they were issues that, that, that were important. And there was a danger that the sisters could be removed from the monastery were they to lose it because it, it was not legally in their name. And some other matters which we'll hear later on. Five months after the repose of St Nectarius, the, sons, the, the nuns decided to construct a marble tomb for their beloved father. The reason for this was that the grave of the saint was rough and temporary because it was made quickly when he died. So he died, they made a quick grave, as that happens even here, and then later on they put the marble and things. So they wanted to 
put a proper tombstone to make it a proper grave. To do this, the coffin was taken out of the grave and placed in the courtyard. Then they opened the coffin, this was five months after he died, and to their amazement they found their beloved spiritual father to be incorrupt and unchanged. It was as though he was sleeping. His hands and face were of a golden yellow colour, which is characteristic of someone who's a saint. Also, a sweet fragrance came from the holy relics of the saint. Even the flowers from the lemon tree that were found to be fresh as when they were first placed in the coffin five months earlier. So five months after, this is what they found. Incorrupt. Does that always happen? No, we're going to see later on. Some saints remain incorrupt, some don't remain incorrupt. Does it mean one's better than the other? We'll see as time goes on. I'm going to explain all that later on. His relics remained in the abbess's office for three days until the construction of the new grave had been completed. Now, you can imagine if we took someone out of a grave that, was, had been, that died five months ago and have them in our house, it would smell. But he didn't. During these days, the, no, the nuns noticed in amazement that, once again, the saint's hair and beard was filled with fragrant myrrh as it was when he died. So his hair, his beard, was saturated with liquid myrrh. That was beautiful, sweet fragrance. And there were thousands of people who were in Athens and Paris at the time that saw that. And that's why God allowed him to go to the hospital. Because if he died in Agena, some people would have seen that. And then people would have said... Oh, the nuns are making that up for business, as people say today. The nuns are making that up. They're saying that he's spiritually holy, so everyone can come and buy candles and for 10 cents. But the thing is that in this case, God didn't want that to happen, just like when God allowed himself, Christ, to be buried in the tomb, in the new tomb, because if they used the tomb that was used by someone else, then he rose from the dead, they would say, oh, it wasn't Christ that rose from the dead, it was the soul or something of someone else that was in there. Everything has meaning. Whatever is worked out, God works out perfectly. Just like the universe that he created is perfect, everything is perfect. The physical laws, the chemical laws, the biological, everything is perfect. That's the same way as he also rules our life perfectly. He knows what's best for all of us. So in this case, that's why that happened, so that thousands and thousands of people would see his relics there. Now, we're back now to the, um, to the um, convent. There's only the nuns there, maybe a couple of people, but that was not many people there. That was only five months later. The fragrance was, which filled the office was very strong, similar to what took place in the hospital and at the ferry there. The nuns cried out, he's a saint. We need to tell the church authorities, not to tell the bishop. The abbess, however, disagreed and said that, that they should wait three more years. After the new tomb was completed, the coffin was placed inside and covered with a tombstone that was donated by the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School. That happens a lot in Orthodox church. Like, for example, uh, St. John. 
Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, whose relics are incorrupt in San Francisco, a Russian saint. They, uh, they un un um, opened up his coffin earlier on and found him incorrupt, reburied him. Then later on, they, when they canonised him in 1994, they put his relics in the church so people can venerate. He's incorrupt. There's another one which, hap which, is, um, which is newly, which is uh, newly, is Metropolitan Filaret of New York. He was a Russian Orthodox bishop of the Russian church outside of Russia. He died in 1985 and twice they've opened up his coffin and his relics are so perfect, in, in, they are incorrupt even more than the relics of St John Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco. Now they've reburied him again, or put him in a tomb somewhere, and wait. The last time they opened up his coffin was in 1998. His vestments were perfect. There was no sign of deterioration. Even the paper that Russians put in the dead person's hand, which is a prayer, the paper had not deteriorated. The only thing which decomposed was that, as you know, when they bury a priest or a bishop, they put a gospel, and some of these gospels are ornamental, and they've got a clip to clip them to close them. There's, a clip, there's two clips. As soon as they touched those clips, they dissolved. The funeral director that came said that that shows that there was moisture in the coffin because the clips rusted and he couldn't understand well if the clips rusted then why is that person lying there totally incorrupt so God willing uh, he will hopefully be taken out again and given so people can uh, made available so people can venerate and to be canonized the saint but he's only he's only he's only been he's only been dead now for he's passed away uh, 28 28 years ago where is he buried? I think in Holy Trinity, Jordanville. Uh, in America. Mm. Why did he? Why? Why was he? Why did he remain incorrupt? Why did Saint John remain incorrupt? Why did Saint Nikolai of the Serbian Church? He became bones. Saint Eustace, I'm not sure. I think they haven't unburied him. And other saints, some remained, some became bones, some didn't. What's the answer to that? You'll hear in the as we go on. We'll explain. Despite the fact that the saints' relics were discovered incorrupt and the fact that those who, con those who considered Metropolitan Nectarius to be a saint were rapidly increasing in number, because news obviously started to spread, Metropolitan Theocritus of Athens did not have a, have a change of heart towards the Holy Nectarius and the convent. He didn't change his animosity his hostility towards the saint and towards his nuns and the convent. He still was causing problems. Metrop uh, some, some months later, Metropolitan Theroctoclos sent a priest, as he did when the saint was alive, to investigate the convent, in particular, their finances. Um, that's some bishops, that's how they are. Um, we have, as we say, their 
in Greek we say their God is not o Christos, which means is not Christ, but is Chryso, which means gold. So instead of having Christ and worshipping him as God, they worship the money as God. And therefore, this man was obsessed with finances and what the money and how much money they've got, etc. And that happens. We can't deny that there are bishops who are like that. Uh, I can't lie because when later on you see it, then you get scandalised and you say, oh, the church, it means it's bad. We have to run away. What's the point in going to church? Well, St. Nectarius lived with these type of bishops and he did not leave the church. He still became a saint and they're gone. He lives in the, in the, um, in the church as one of the greatest Orthodox saints. So if he didn't leave, why should we leave? Well, because it was, oh, that priest is making money. And that person, well, don't go to them. It's as simple as that. Go find priests which are good. Remember, out of the 12 apostles, Judas was still in the money. Christ, as God, knew he was still in the money. But he waited for his repentance. It didn't mean that the work that Christ did was for nothing. And it doesn't mean that the other 11 apostles were were bad because one of their members was corrupt and was still in the money and that was Christ allowed that for the future because there always there will never be a time where there are clergy who will not be interested just in money etc that's a fact so let's not um think that some are tempted and they're struggling but there are others who have given their life to the money so if you know that's happening, just go find a priest which, you know, is leading a spiritual life and cares for the salvation of your soul. And there's plenty of them around. These investigations caused much stress and pain to the nuns when this priest would come over from the bishop. He would ask them many questions, rudely, etc., and he examined and he examined their account books to see how much money and all that. The, these persecutions against the convent and the memory of Blessed Nectarius did not change the attitude of the people toward the Holy Saint. Even though the bishop was persecuting, remember as well that Justin Bobovich was also persecuted, and we have to remember that Saint Nikolai Velimirovich was also persecuted a lot by bishops as well. Saint, Saint Justin became a saint, Saint Nikolai became a saint, Saint John, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, was persecuted by... His, some of his fellow bishops, but he became a saint. One could say that the more Metropolitan Theoclitus persecuted the convent and the memory of Blessed Nectarius, the more the fame of the convent and the saint spread. The more the Jews tried to say that Christ is false, that his miracles were false, that he's, a, that he's a false messiah and that he didn't rise from the dead and they paid the soldiers. The more they did that, the more this religion, this small band of people in Jerusalem spread throughout the whole world. And not only that, the Roman, the Roman, the, the, the Roman um, Empire for 300 years persecuted Christians, as you know. They fed them to the lions and killed them, etc., for 300 years, they were persecuted. But what happened after that? St. Constantine stopped the persecution. And then further on, St. Theodosius, the great, I think I can't remember, 
uh, actually accepted orthodoxy as the religion of the Roman Empire. So we see that they did their job to, to try to put down the church, but they didn't. Russia, we have to say that they, that they really tried for 70, 80 years to, uh, to completely get rid of orthodoxy. And what did they do? What's happening now? Churches everywhere and people running to church, etc. Today we have other ones that are trying to persecute through the television, through films. They're all trying to put down Christianity, blaspheming, making jokes, etc. continually. But what happens? Are they doing much? Or is the church still uh, increasing? And that's what Christ said. He goes that, um, that don't, don't fear the small flock and that his church will spread throughout the world and his church will never be destroyed. And that's what's happened. No other church has been persecuted like the Orthodox Church. Just think. When the, um, when the Turks started taking over, which countries did they take over? Most of them were Orthodox countries. Communism, which, which, which uh, countries did they take? Most of them were Orthodox countries. So the Orthodox Church has been persecuted and St. Nikolai says that that's a sign that it is true. Now we go to the priest monk that did the funeral, Father Savas. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about him. He's significant for a few reasons. Father Savas was the elderly priest monk mentioned as I, before that he, who conducted the funeral service for St. Nectaris. He's also well known for painting the first icon of the saint. One day, Father Savas asked the abbess not to let anyone disturb him for 40 days. During this time, he locked himself in his cell, in his room. However, the nuns could hear constant conversation from within the cell, even though Father Savas was on his own. After 40 days, he came out of his cell holding an icon of the saint. He handed it to the abbess. Now, this happened only... See, it's, it's, we don't know. Uh, I, can't, I couldn't find the date. I tried to research it. But it did happen between... Somewhere in the beginning, I think, after maybe one year, two years. I, I'm not really sure. After 40 days, he came out of his cell holding an icon of the saint. He handed it to the abbess and asked her to place it in the church for veneration. The abbess was surprised since Metropolitan Nectarius had not officially, had not been officially glorified, that means canonised, as a saint, and was afraid that the convent would get into trouble. You just can't get someone that died and then put them into the church for veneration, their icons and things like that. That's, the Russians are quite strict on that, and they say no. For example, St John, he passed away in 1966, and people looked at him as a saint, but the church, the Russian church abroad, would not allow icons of him in the churches, and they did not allow services to him to be said in the churches, People who privately wanted to pray to him were allowed privately at home. 
Some people even put some services together, but they were for private use only, not in the church, because he had not been canonised. And some people went crazy and they said, oh, look, they're against Archbishop John and they're not canonising him. But he only just died recently. So as time went on, these people were going more and more silly and saying that he has to be canonised and things like that. Anyway, meanwhile, miracles were occurring and when someone wanted a favour from the saint, they would go to his grave in San Francisco that was underneath the church. By the way, the San Francisco authorities at the time, the, the, the councils we say, were very much against the Russians burying a dead body in the area of a city, but the Russians fought for that and they got it approved and he was put down underneath um, in, um, in a, one of the bottom rooms made into like a little chapel. There, which I also had the honour of going, we, people would go there and the priest would do panahidas, which is what we say in Greek, pneumosima. That means prayers for the dead. The reason for that is that the church was not allowed to do, to pray to him as a saint, officially. So the, what they did is they would do these memorial prayers. Now, this helps us to understand the orthodox teaching about memorial prayers and helping the dead. When someone dies, we have to pray because we don't know how their soul is going after in the next life, whether they made it and whether they didn't, and that's why we pray for them. And we do liturgies, we give money to the poor, we do memorial prayers, panahitas as we say, Muslim and Greek, and uh, those things. We must do that for the person. And what are we asking when we do that? We're asking God to grant that person rest and put him in the, into heaven. Well, I've done a whole talk about that in talks 29 and 30. I don't want to go through all of that. Now, what happens if the person's already in heaven? Like St. John, or was, was, uh, people believed he was, he, was, he was saved. He was a saint. Um, the fact that later on they found him in corrupt, the fact that he, the miracles were occurring, the fact that he led a holy life, etc. So what happened there was that the church teaches when you do a memorial prayer for someone who has already been saved, then that person in return prays for you. So when people were going to the grave of Saint of Archbishop John and doing memorial prayers, prayers for the dead, asking God to grant rest to this holy to this hierarch and put him in heaven he already we 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 say he was already in heaven so what happens then is the saint those who have made it in return pray for us so for example if you pray for your mother or your father or grandfather someone's died but they've made it they've actually been saved we don't know we, we still have to pray for them then if they're saved then we're not those prayers don't help those people to go to heaven. They're already in heaven. Those prayers come back onto us. The sa- those people that are saved help us in return. And that's what was happening with St. John, for example. Um, now, the, in the Greek church, similar things happen. We don't just say, he's a saint, that person's saint, let's do an icon, let's do a service, let's do that. And um, so that's why the abbess was, a very sh- was, was quite shocked when this father said to her, you will put this icon, not this one, an icon, in the church so people can venerate only after a couple of years or whatever, one year, two years after he passed away. And she was scared. 
Now, I don't know, as I said, whether it was, the, it was, whether it was Blessed Xenia or whether it was the second abbess. The, I couldn't get the dates right. But all I know is it happened before 1925 for sure, which we'll see in a minute. So after 40 days, he came out and he handed it to the abbess and asked her to place it in the church for veneration. The abbess was surprised since Metropolitan Nectarius had not been officially glorified as a saint by the church and was afraid that the convent would get in trouble from the bishops. Although Father Savas was always meek and humble, he insisted, this is what I said before, see, the elders, because he was an elder, uh, what I said in the beginning of the talk, when the elders are not sure of something or they're humble and they say whatever God wills, but when they are sure of something which is exceptional, they will say, and look what he said, he, 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 as, he, as he said, he never would want his own way. He was a humble person. However, in this matter, he said, he commanded her in a strict manner, you must show obedience. Take the icon and place it, it on an icon stand and do not question the will of God. He knew the Metropolitan had become a saint. So, exceptions. Even in, this, even in his lifetime, many people, especially Neyina, regarded Metropolitan Tarius as a holy man. If you remember from the last talks, he, when, the, when it hadn't rained for three years, he prayed. It, it rained so much that they went back and said, can you please pray for it to stop because the, the island's um, um, gonna, we're going to drown. He made the possessed person well. That was a possessed boy that was on the island. That's in the previous talk and many other miracles that he did. So they already regarded him as a holy person. This was because of his purity of life, his virtues, faith, love and his humility, his gift of foreknowledge, his, his prophetic gifts, and the miracles he performed while he was alive. After his death, however, the people of Aegina began to venerate him as they would a saint of the church. They would regard him like they would St Nicholas, St. George, and things like that. So, for example, they prayed to him to intercede for them before God and to protect their island on which he had built the, his convent. They painted icons, not, not just Father Sabas, but they also, some of the people started painting icons too and other people. They painted icons showing the Holy One as a saint with a halo. All this was happening even before he was formally canonised as a saint. To them, he was a saint. In 1921, one year after the repose of Metropolitan Nectarius, the first biography recognising as a saint, recognising him as a saint, was written by a monk in Crete. And he wrote part of his book. He said, although he has not yet been officially recognised as a saint by the Holy Church of Christ, nevertheless, the character of his life, the facts concerning his life, and the various miracles which he performed in his lifetime and after death, as well as the ineffable, uh, ineffable means like, uns I think it means unspeakable fragrance, like you can't put into words how it was so beautiful, emitted by his relics, testify that he received special grace and sanctification from God. Same thing happened when St. John died, Elder Paisios, other Elder Porfirios, as soon as these holy people die, it doesn't take long for people who knew them to start producing 
books and people get to know them more. So it's the same thing here. As soon as he, as soon as he passed away, it wasn't long, 1921, one year later, they actually, this person here, uh, a monk from Crete, um, he wrote the first biography of the life of the saint. People also began to recognise Saint uh, Metropolitan Nectarius as a saint throughout the Greek Orthodox world. In other words, not just in Aegina, on Aegina, but in Greece, Egypt, where he actually was a bishop for a while, America, Canada, Jerusalem, Constantinople. No doubt the miracle at the hospital, where the paralysed person got better, the sweet-smelling liquid myrrh that came from the saint's body, the fact that his body was found to be incorrupt after five months, the many miracles performed by the saint after death, and the circulation of his biography would have had a great impact on the faithful. You see, when people begin to read the life of the person, they become closer. That's why we read the lives of saints, because um, that's why I'm doing, God willing, five talks, nearly four hours each, on one saint, because that's how we get to know. The more we get to know about the saint, the more closer we come to the saint. And that's why the church teaches. St John Christum says, those who do not read the lives of saints, how can they be saved, he said? Because it's the lives of saints which help us understand how to live an orthodox Christian life. The Protestants, throughout the lives of saints, they only have the Bible. But then if you, when they read the Bible, they get everything wrong because they, we need not just the Bible. We're not Protestants. We are Orthodox Christians. As Orthodox Christians, we have the Bible and we have the tradition of the church and part of the tradition is the lives of saints. That's why we read the lives of saints. So when people started to read these, the life of, of the saint, they became closer to him, especially those who did not know him in America and other, in other places. The... Uh, the uh, uh, as time went on, the number of those suffering from various afflictions and tribulations who were helped by St. Nectarius increased. The, the miracles were increasing as time went on. The saints' miracles and benefactions were many, like what? The demon-possessed were delivered, the paralyzed recovered, the disabled were cured, those in danger at sea were saved, and in general, to those suffering from afflictions and tribulations, he showed himself to be a speedy helper and protector. He also appeared in the dreams of many, helping them in their time of need. Now, let's look at how. These miracles and benefits came about in different ways. Let's look at different ways. One, by prayers to St. Nectarius at his tomb, made by the individual themselves who were sick, or others on behalf of the individual who went to Ayana to pray at the relics, or people would write a letter or I don't know if they had telephones when the, when the telephones came about, to ring the nuns or write letters to the nuns and say, can you please pray for my father in America or whatever who's sick? And then they, people would go, either the person themselves or the nuns for the person or another person, a relative or friend, would go to the relics of the saints, to, of the saint. Um, as the saint foretold, more and more people began to visit the convent to pray before his holy relics. So soon... They had to open, they, well, the donkey path wasn't enough, they had to open up a road. And I don't know when that happened, but by, by prayers to St. Nectarius, number two, what's another way that the saint helped them? By prayers to St. Nectarius, not at his tomb, made by individuals or by others on the person's behalf from far away. Like tonight, we prayed to St. Nectarius, we did a paraclysis, a maleben. We, we 
weren't in Aegina, we had a little piece of the relic, uh, but even if we didn't have a piece of the relic of St Nectarius, then it doesn't matter. We don't have to go to Aegina. As long as a person has faith in their heart and believes in the, that, 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 that the saint can help, then the saint comes to that person wherever the person is. So don't say, oh, we can't go to St Nectarius. We've also got St Nectarius Church in Burwood, a Greek Orthodox church. And as I mentioned in the last talk, or the first talk, Saint Nic- there is Saint, uh, the Greeks love St Nectarius and there are churches to St Nectarius or monasteries in every single city of Australia. There's a church to St Nectarius, except for Northern Territory. They've got there only one church, St Nicholas. So we don't have to go to the, to the um, relics. We can pray to the saint at home and the best would be to pray to have the priest to do a maleban service like we did tonight. By anointing the sick person with oil taken from the vigil lamp that burns beside the tomb, saint's tomb. So they have oil lamps, as you noticed in the, in the pictures that were sent through the emails. Um, they've got a lot of oil lamps in the, in the tomb, wherever the tomb is. They would get the oil, put them in bottles, and people could take them, as we'll see later on. Number four, place in an icon of the saint near the sick person. That's another way. And um, by the intercessions of the saint without having been called upon. Sometimes St Nectarius would go to the person, would help a person, without the person or anyone else asking for help, as we'll see in the examples. Now, the veneration of the holy relics in the Orthodox Church, Protestants and many people put the Orthodox down and say we are worshippers of bones and worshippers of dead bodies and other stupidities and they say the same about icons and they say that there's nowhere in the church's teaching that we venerate relics. I was going to go through a whole section of that but I didn't want to kind of interfere with the life of the saint so I only put a little bit in today. Maybe in a future talk I will go through the history of the church that the, author, that, that, the author, that the Christian church from the first centuries venerated relics of saints. So they don't know what they're talking about. The Holy Orthodox Church not only venerates or honours the saints who have departed with their souls into heaven, but also venerates, honours, in other words, the relics or bones or the bodies of the saints which remain on earth. So yes, we venerate Saint Nectarius who is in heaven, but we also venerate his body which is on earth for the saints. We don't just venerate the saint in heaven with their soul. Maybe some foolish people would say, "We yes, I believe in saints in heaven, but what's their bodies, their bones got to do with it? But that's, but that's wrong. Because the, the body is connected to the soul. And the body is so special because, of the res- because Christ took on human flesh. And when he rose from the dead and sits now, at, at, as we say, at the right hand of the Father, he is in his body. And when the last day comes, all of us will rise from the dead with the body that we have right now. The same body. 
So that's why we give this special attention to the body. As with the veneration of icons, the veneration of relics in the Orthodox Church is clearly different to worship, what we say in Greek, latria. We only worship God and not the saints. We don't worship saints. Worship is only for God. The Orthodox Church warns the faithful against idolatry, but at the same time permits the veneration of relics and the saints. This is found in holy tradition. So we venerate the saints, we honour the saints, but we only worship God. When we honour and venerate holy relics, we believe not in the power of the remains of the saints in themselves. We're not venerating the bones or the body of the saint, of the, of the person in and of itself. But rather, we, um, but rather in the prayerful intercession of the saint. When we venerate the body of the saint or, the, or, his, or, or their bones, we are asking God's help through the saint. But rather in the prayerful intercession of the saints whose holy relics are before us, the saints pray to God on our behalf and God approves the veneration of the saints and relics because that's why he allows these supernatural things to happen and miracles because he wants us to do that. God himself honours and glorifies the relics of the saints by countless signs and miracles. In the case of St. Nectarius, that he had myrrh and all the miracles that occurred. Therefore, it is God who grants the miracles, but he does it through the relics of the saints, something for which there is testimony throughout the whole course of the church's history. We see it in tradition, the writings of the saints, the lives of saints, even in the Bible, we see that. God is pleased when we venerate the relics of the saints. We pray to the saint and the saint asks God on our behalf. The saint can do nothing of himself. Really, strictly speaking, we shouldn't even say the saint did the miracle. We should say God performed the miracle through the saint. And that's why in the Trapario that we heard in the beginning of the, of the, during the service quite a number of times, and tonight, the Silivria one, that's the famous uh, Trapario written to St. Nectarius, it's, it says there, and this is a lot, this is the ending of a lot of Trapario to the saints, the last part is very important. It says at the end... Um, Glory to Christ who has glorified thee. See the Protestant says, we glorify Christ. No, we only, we only Christ. Well, that's what we do. But, you, but you're glorifying the saints. No, we glorify the saints because Christ glorified them. So let's say that this is the last part. Glory to Christ who has glorified you, meaning the saint. Glory to him, capital H meaning God. Glory to Christ who has made thee wondrous... Glory to him, capital H, who worketh healings for all through you. 
The miracles that are done, that are performed, are through the saints. Ultimately, they are from God. So that's where people get it wrong. So we'll just say here, we pray to the saint, and the saint asks God on our behalf. Miracle number one. I, what I've done here is I've sprinkled the miracles through the whole life in, in places of their dates. Now, so we'll go through some of the history of, the church, of, of what we're talking about, the saint, and we'll put every so often some miracles. Instead of going through the miracles all at once at the end, um, so here's, here's, here's a miracle that happened in 1922, two years after the death. But of course there was others, but this is just one that was I found. A teenage girl named Constantina, from the time that she was very young, was tormented by an unclean spirits. Now psychiatrists, psychologists say unclean spirits don't believe. Sorry, they don't exist. And my answer to that is I don't really care what they say. Her parents heard of the wonder-working and healing power of the recently reposed hierarch Nectarius of Aegina. He had, he had become known. So in 1922, they came with great faith together with their suffering daughter to Aegina in order to venerate the blessed Nectarius's grave. Constantina venerated the grave and stayed a few days at the convent. She was healed and with heartfelt thanks, she glorified and praised Saint Nectarius the wonder worker. Constantina then made the decision to remain at the convent and dedicate herself to God as a nun. She was tonsured with the name Kikilia. Now, this is a miracle that, number one of the time that I said that, where they came to the tomb and prayed in front of the, the relics of Saint Nectarius. On the 9th of September 1922, the Turks entered the city of Smyrna, attacking the Greek population. So around two years after the death of St. Nectar, the, the Blessed Repose, the, there, was, there was problems over in that all the time, but the Turks entered the city of Smyrna, attacking the Greek population. Within five days, they massacred around 50 to 100,000 Greek Orthodox Christians. I think there was other ones there too, other types of Orthodox, like Armenian, but not the same as the Greek Orthodox, but anyway. Yeah, 1.5 million Greeks were forced to leave Asia Minor. One million of them came to Greece. This posed a very big problem for Greece because they didn't know what to do with them all. Because of these problems, the investigations by Metropolitan Theoklitos of Athens ceased. He was too busy to involve himself with the convent because he had a big problem. So through divine providence, the persecution stopped for a while, like it did in the previous talk, if I remember right, was it the First World War? The First World War happened and then St Nectarius's monastery had some time of respite for a few years. So these things happened um, by divine providence. A few months later, in December of 1922, Metropolitan Theoctetus of Athens was once again dethroned. Archimandrite Chrysostom Papadopoulos was elected to become the new Metropolitan of Athens. Now, uh, Archimandrite Chrysostom had once been a student of St Nectarius in the first years at the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School. Like many other students of the saint, he was positively influenced by the saint's sermons, writings and his holy way of life. It's also interesting to note that he became the director later on after the saint left. 
he also became the director of the ecclesiastical school for a period of time. At the time of his election as Metropolitan of Athens, he still held the saint in high regard. Now that he was the new Metropolitan of Athens, there was hope that he would use his position to grant official recognition to the convent of Aegina, a recognition that should have been granted approximately 14 years earlier in 1908 when the church was consecrated, St. Nectarius said to the Metropolitan Theoctetus then, we're finished, grant, grant us um, recognition, and he said no, and that's when all the problems began. So now the nuns and people were saying, oh, now that Chrysostom is going to become Metropolitan of Athens, he will influence the synod and grant the convent finally this recognition. Um, we, will rem we remember that the saint tried very hard to have the convent officially recognised. However, he was sadly never able to see his dream realised because he died. The question arises, will the new metropolitan who was favourable to Saint Nectarius finally recognise the convent? God granted the blind abbess Xenia. Now we'll go, we'll, 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 look, we'll see what's going to happen with him soon. Back now to Blessed Xenia, to uh, the Blessed Abbess Xenia the blind, who was blind. So much for these people that say we have to do these special tests to see if the, if the child, the embryo, has got any maladies so that they can then read it, read, read, get rid of it and then wait until they have a one that doesn't have any problems. It's got a hereditary problem. Maybe, no, it's got an inclination towards diabetes. You get rid of it. So all these stupid things that people are doing and here we have a, a woman who was blind. She became blind from young. If you remember from the, first, the other talks. And yet, did, the, did her blindness stop her of becoming holy? No. She became known for her deep prayer life. Humility, faith, love and clairvoyance. This was due to the influence of Saint Nectarius on her life. And I've got a little thing here for you. Show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. What does that mean? Well, who was her? Who was she close to? Saint Nectarius. What's Saint Nectarius? A saint. What did she become? A saint. Not canonised, but she's still, um, uh, uh, she obviously is a saint. Who's your friends? So I was speaking to someone the other day and they said that they hang around, they're Orthodox Christians, but they hang around with, this, with their friend. The friend speaks about um, her boyfriend, about this, about that, and other intimate things. I say, you're Orthodox Christian and you're listening to her, oh, but she's my friend. Well, you will become the same as her. And what happened? Just about that's what's happening. Show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. We hang around with riffraff, that's how we become. We hang around with those who, who are not leading a Christian life, we will become the same as them. On one occasion, a nun saw the righteous Xenia two metres above the ground, illumined by God's light. That, and as well as her, you see, should we just look at that? Well, people in India can also have light around them. It says that they, even the devil can appear as an angel of light. Um, people can levitate. There was a fellow in England lately who's a magician who walked on the on the river. Well, some people say there was a platform. Now I don't know 
how they've got the platform, they've all the security in London to do with terrorism, where, how they got this platform, then he walked on the platform, some, and, but some people saw it and they said it looked, it looked real. So, did he walk on water? That's what I want to talk about later on, that we don't take isolated things and say, that person walked on water because Christ walked on water. So Christ walked on water, he's God, so this person must be God. See, we get confused. We don't just look at miracles. We look at everything. That's what this talks about. The Blessed Ksenia had humility, she had faith, she had love, she, you know, and things like that. How can you be from God without humility? How can you be from God without repentance? How can you be from God without a liturgical life, like communion often? The Blessed Ksenia reposed peacefully on October 1923, approximately one week before the third anniversary anniversary of the repose of Saint Nectarius. Like her spiritual father, she departed this world without seeing the convent officially recognised by the Church of Greece. It was now 1923, three years after the repose of the saint. The custom in Greece is that after three years, a grave is opened and the bones are taken out and placed in a box, and that box is stored in a dedicated building in a cemetery. Now, Greece has a space problem, small, mountainous, etc. So they don't, it's not like here where we keep them in the ground and other countries. In Greece, they take them out. So my grandmother passed away there and about three or four years later, they took her out as bones. They put, they put her bones, all the family comes. I think the priest comes as well. They take the bones out, put them in the, wash them, put them into a, um, into a little box and that box then goes into this special dedicated building which has all the relics of the departed people. That's a, that's a custom. So, the nuns were hoping that the body of their beloved spiritual father would still be incorrupt. When they opened his tomb, they were amazed to find the saint's body had not decomposed. This is three years now. The last time they opened it up was after five months. This time it's after three years. He appeared as he did on the day of his burial. His hands and face were still golden yellow in colour and a sweet fragrance came from his relics and filled the area. It doesn't just fill that. It actually filled the courtyard and there's even accounts where people could smell it from further down, down the monastery, you know, from further away. It should be noted that the fragrance was stronger than all the other times. The nuns telephoned Finally, they decided they have to ring the, Arch the um, Archbishop Chrysostom Papadopoulos of Athens for advice on what to do. So now I want to say something here. I mucked up in the second talk. I always know that the head, that the president of the Synod of Greece is called Archbishop of Athens. When I was reading the life of St Nectarius, they kept on referring to the head as the Metropolitan. So I said, oh, maybe they've made a mistake. So I took it on myself, which I shouldn't have. And, I, and in the second talk, I kept on referring to the, to the then um, uh, Metropolitan as Archbishop Theoklik, uh, Archbishop Germanos, Archbishop. That was all wrong. I made a mistake. Then in the third talk, I went back to Metropolitan. So this is what happened. I didn't understand it. Up to 1923, the president of the Synod of Greece was, was called Metropolitan of Athens. But... 
Later, after 1923, or at the end of 1923, the title changed to Archbishop of Athens, and that's why now the, 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 the main, the, the Archbishop there is called, well, that's, that's what they call him, Archbishop. So I made a mistake, anyway. So I, now, he's no longer called Metropolitan, he's now called Archbishop of, of Athens. So just a little thing there for those that are interested, some of you aren't, uh, I don't blame you. News of this great miracle became known to quite a few Orthodox Christians and clergy. The miracle that he was incorrupt again after three years. However, there was a difference of opinion regarding the relics of the saint. Many believed in the miracle, but there were those who doubted or disbelieved. Agahna, Kampi. Even those who were practising Orthodox Christians found it hard to believe that such a miracle could occur in the 20th century. I was reading the, uh, the Divine Liturgy explained by Metropolitan Augustinus of, of uh, Florina, and all his books are excellent. And I've, all, I've encouraged a lot of people to buy them. Simple, about three pages is each of his little, his little sermons there, and they are wonderful. Anyway, so we've got a lot of them there. The Gospels, the Epistles, they're back. Now, they're excellent. And I was reading the other day his explanation of the liturgy. He was going through the petitions and one of the petitions says, for pious and orthodox Christians, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. And he says there, why, doesn't the, why don't they just say, for orthodox Christians? Why don't they say, for pious orthodox? And he explains this because he said, many are baptised. The church baptises, but they're not pious. They're not leading spiritual lives. So when the church prays, they don't pray for orthodox Christians who are baptised in name but leading a horrible life, but they're praying for pious orthodox Christians. And what does pious orthodox Christians mean? It means those who are trying to live their life according to the commandments of Christ and who are partaking in the mysteries of the church and are leading godly lives to the best of their ability and when they fail... As we all do, we, we have repentance and confession. That's what pious, orthodox Christians mean. And that's why I, I, I want to say here that many practising orthodox, what does practising mean? Because they go to church on Sundays. Or because they go to a memorial prayer when someone dies. Does that mean that they're pious, orthodox Christians? So unfortunately, that's why there was a problem in that time because orthodox Christians, they weren't really living proper lives were saying, how can that be? How can, how, can, how can that miracle occur in the 20th century? What? So God is only for the first 19. And thereafter, God does not, is not able to do miracles. It doesn't make sense. It's actually blasphemy. The Archbishop, actually, after receiving the call, went to Ayana to examine the relics of the saint. When he saw the relics, he ordered the sisters to leave the saint in the sun for a few days and then rebury him for a further four years. He then said, bury the body again so it can decompose. It seems that the Archbishop doubted Metropolitan sanctity. Even though he had personally witnessed the saint's incorrupt and fragrant relics when he came, he said, uh, just put him back in the ground so he can decompose. The nuns in their simplicity obeyed the Archbishop, though they were displeased with his command. They're upset. The saint was left outside in the sun for two days and then they reburied his relics. One author wrote in one of the books, it says, quote, when the most blessed, 
Archbishop of Athens Chrysostom, with devout interest, took the initiative and personally examined the body, whatever, da-da. So, in other words, the most blessed Archbishop, with devout interest. So he came and he was interested in a pious way and then he, uh, etc. But they don't say the truth. Other books say the truth. And the truth is that he came and he disbelieved and he uh, was, was, with impiety, said, oh, I'll leave it in the sun and then rebury it, etc. So sometimes books aren't written properly. Perhaps there could be some doubt as to whether the Archbishop's actions stemmed from impiety. Because some people can say, oh, no, maybe he was doing the right thing. However, the following section will leave us with no doubt as to his spiritual state. And what was that? This bishop is, this archbishop is very famous for something, but not something which is good. Something which is one of the worst things that's happened to the church. On March the 10th, old calendar, on the 23rd, new calendar, 1924, Archbishop Chrysostom Papadopoulos of Athens changed the church calendar from the old, which is known as the Julian calendar, to the new calendar, which is known as the Gregorian calendar. I remember some people telling me that were alive that they said to me, we, it was the... It was the, um, because they changed on the 10th, but people in the villages wouldn't have known that. And suddenly they said the next day, on, on the 11th, which is the, 20, the 24th in the new calendar, the bells were ringing and the people were saying, what's happening? What, what, there's no feast day? And they go, yeah, no, it's Evangelius Mos. It's the Annunciation of the... Of the, of the and they said, but that's in two weeks' time. They go, no, no, the calendar's changed. So, why was it bad? Because that caused a big schism in the church. That caused a tremendous amount of problem in the church. One, one fellow, um, a barber, if I remember right, from history, said that when this bishop was on his throne in Patras, I think, he um, somehow ran up to him and, with a scissors and started to cut his beard in, in protest, saying that what he did was bad. And this topic needs to be treated. I'm not going to treat it now, but what happened was that Meletios, the other one who was very bad to St Nectarius, he actually changed the calendar in Constantinople, then Greece, Romania changed it, the Church of Alexandria changed it, and the 1940s, I think, around there, Bulgaria changed it, and Jerusalem is still with the old, Manathos is still with the old, Serbia is still with the old, and Russia still with the old calendar, and some groups that, that are um, not part of the official church, but they're with the old. Um, does that mean that those who belong to the new calendar, that means that they don't belong to a church? No. And that have, people have to be very, very careful. This is not the fault of the people. This is the fault of the bishops. Metropolitan Augustinos, Augustine, he actually tried to bring the to make Greece change back to the old, to stop these schisms. But there's two issues. There's the, the, there are people that have separated in Greece, as all these different groups, for two reasons. One is because of the calendar, and the other reason is because of ecumenism. So there's a there's a mess in the church today. One of the worst schisms and divisions that the church has seen is because of this issue. 
And that needs to be looked at. Why I brought it up today is because I want to show the, the, the spiritual state of this man and the other one, the Meletios, who later on became patriarch of Constantinople. He did a lot of damage. Actually, when he was dying, he was trying to call out to God for forgiveness and said, what have I done? I've caused the schism in the church. That was the, the Meletios of uh, the patriarch. So, as I said, we will one day, with God's help, treat the topic properly. But it doesn't mean that those who belong to the new means that they're not part, because there are fanatical people who belong to some alt calendars Greek groups who actually teach that there is no mysteries in the new calendar, and not only the new calendar, and all the other churches that even if they're old, but they're with them, like Russia. Because Russia's together with Greece, they've got no mysteries. They've got just fanatical people that don't understand um, what's going on. With the Toll Houses, talks 46 and 47, who remembers what the Toll House 19 was? So when the soul's going up, goes for the ties, lying and all these things, it comes to Toll House number 19. It needs to get through that and Toll House 20 and then from 20 it can go into paradise. Who remembers what the Toll House 19 was? It is the Toll House of heresy. In other words, if we are, if we have heretical views, if we're going against the teachers of the church, we won't get past that toll house, number 19. But one would think, wouldn't 20 be the, the, the one on heresy because that's ultimate? No. Because toll house number 20 is that of mercy, of mercifulness, of almsgiving, of love. And what happens is that people think that we can be orthodox and have no love and be harsh. But when they forget that even if they keep all their days, their 13 days, and if they keep all the dogmas of the church, when they get to number 20, they will be, and we all will be, judged for how merciful we are, how much love do we have. And what I've noticed from these groups who who say that every other church is bad except for theirs, is they have not a trace of love at all. They don't even know what the word means. They're really very, very aggressive, hateful people. And that's why Elder Philothos Zervakos, another great saint, which we're going to mention later on, he says there's no point in keeping the 13 days, and well, keeping the dogmas even, if you haven't got love. And then when I was doing the talk on the tie houses, it all made sense. 19's heresy, 20 is that of love and mercy. In other words, if we are not merciful to others around us, we cannot be saved. Only those who show mercy will be shown mercy. What did, what did Christ say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And without being blasphemous, can I add something to make it a bit easier? Blessed are the merciful, for, brackets, only they shall obtain mercy. So we can be orthodox, but if we haven't got love, as we saw from the saint, he was orthodox, 
but he also had love. And that's where we lack, a lot of us. So we can be proud that we do our three fingers, we can be proud that we're orthodox, we can be proud of a lot of things. But if we haven't got mercy, for our, uh, if, if we aren't, haven't got love and mercy towards our neighbour, we can't be saved. Actually, one fellow now who's a deacon, um, uh, I was discussing with him, and he said, oh, no, you can't say that um, if you don't show mercy, you can't be saved. He didn't like that. He goes, that's not nice. So I, I sent him back all the quotes from the Holy Father. He goes, oh, sorry. The fathers of the church teach, only those who are merciful will obtain mercy. So remember that, and that's one characteristic of those who are fanatical, whether they're ecumenists or whether they're zealots. The ecumenists are fanatical because they're against those who want to hold the orthodox faith and persecute them, and they want us to believe that the Catholic Church is a church, etc., etc., like ours, which it's not. Then we have the zealots, who are those who are against ecumenism, those who are with the old calendar, who have... Who, who don't even know what mercy is, a lot of them. Have no idea, they've got no sense of love. So we need the two. We have truth and love. But truth without love is satanic. So we need truth, the truth of the church's teachings, yes, and love together. Separate Love without truth, which is what the ecumenists say today, they go, we have to love everyone. So they've got love, they think, but nothing to do with truth. Then we've got the other beatniks on this side who actually say we have, um, uh, what was it, truth, orthodoxy, orthodoxy, dogmas, canons, that, 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 but nothing to do with love. God will not ask us if we're just orthodox in dogma, and God will not ask us if we've just got love. He's going to ask us, do we have the two together? Without those two, we will not get through the toll houses. Now, what happened after that? On the 31st of March, around eight days after the calendar was changed, four years after the repose of St Nectarius, the convent was finally recognised by the Church of Greece as a monastic community. Archbishop Chrysostom Papadopoulos would have influenced the synod's decision after so many years of trials and struggles, St. Nectarius's desire was fulfilled. Now, one would say, see, he did a good deed. Okay, he changed the calendar and caused the biggest schism in the church, but he also did a good deed. He recognised the monastery of St. Nectarius. And the answer to that is that when we cause schisms in the church, the fathers of the church say that even your blood, even if you become a martyr, you can't be forgiven because schism is such a, such a bad thing. This person caused a big schism in the church. So even if he did a good deed by later on recognising the monastery, it's not he that recognised it. God chose that time to do it. After the repose of St Nectarius, the number of pilgrims to the convent increased due to the growing reputation of the saint as a miracle worker. This greatly disrupted the quiet life that Father Savas loved. See, Father Savas was a very, it was like a hesychist, very quiet life. He didn't like too much, too many people around. Does that mean he hasn't got love? No. Everyone's different. 
Even St. Nectarius was craving that peace and that quietness and that's why he wanted to go and retire at Magna as well. He wanted to just lead that deeper spiritual life which can't be done when there's too many people around. Now some of you might say, but I'm married. I live in the world. I've got children. How am I going to lead a holy life? God doesn't desire that from, from, from people in the world. God desires take care of your family. That's your askisi. That's your, that's your podvig. That's your spiritual life. You will become holy through the upbringing of children and how you relate to your spouse and those around you. These people who are monks and monastics, they become holy through a different, a bit of a different means. Right? Some people get deceived and they go, oh, I've got to go and run away from my family so I can become holy. No, you can become holy with your family. That's the purpose of marriage. So what happened was this greatly disrupted the quiet life that Father Savas loved. So in 1925, five years after the, the repose of the saint, he left Ergina and went to the island of Kalimnos. He had stayed at the convent for six years. He actually, he actually the, he first came to the convent in 1919, one year before the repose of the saint. Now, this is how I'll explain to you. How did Father Savas end up at the convent on Ergina? In 1919, at age 57, he was invited to stay at Ergina by Saint Nectarius to serve as a priest at the convent of the Holy Trinity and to teach the nuns the sacred art of iconography and Byzantine music, something he learned on Mount Athos. That's interesting. Saint Nectarius used to do all the services. What, why one year did that happen? Well, the prostatitis. He found it very difficult to serve. He would sweat, he would be, it was excruciating the pain. So one thing, I think what happened was that he, that's why it was one year before, invited a priest to be there to serve more often because he couldn't do all the services probably there. And as well, this person was a master of Byzantine art, iconography, and Byzantine music, and he wanted his nuns to learn these two things. During the, this one year that he was with, far, with, uh, with Father Savas, be, um, was it the Ayinam, he became not only a spiritual child of St. Nectarius but also a close friend. They became spiritually united. At this time, St. Nectarius was at the height of his spiritual development. If you remember in the last talk, that in particular towards the end of his life, the last few years, he had reached such a level of sanctity that he never had before through, because of his sufferings and because of the quietness of the life there. And uh, he was given, he, one can say that he entered into a, like he had the, 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 the prayer of the heart, and he was, one, one person that wrote a life of him said that he was, he was full of the grace of God. And this priest monk was influenced through that contact. Well, what, what happened to him? Father Savas, through that contact with Saint Nectarius, he stayed there for five years and no one left. Because of his holy life, this is Father Savas became holy, and the numerous miracles and healings he had performed, Father Savas is regarded as a saint in Greece. He is known as Saint Savas the New of Kalimnos, and his feast day uh, is April the 7th. There's a few other feast days. Are we ready now? Sit down.
Someone reminded me just on that thing with the, uh, when we have zeal for the faith. Um, when we take one aspect of orthodoxy and become fanatical, that's when problems occur. So there are people who were zealous for the faith, but that was just it, and they weren't leading the spiritual life in other things. They weren't looking at humility, they weren't looking at repentance, they weren't looking at love, etc. So the, those zealots that I spoke about before spoke about they were very strict on the matters of faith, but they were not uh, leading, a lot of them were not leading a spiritual life at the same time. Then we've got the ecumenists who are interested in truth, no, they're not interested in truth, they're interested in love, but they have to look at the other aspect of orthodoxy, which is the right faith, the truth. So the ecumenists make a mistake in that they talk about love, which they don't have any of, but they believe they have. Then we can, everyone should join because we, want it, because we love everyone. And we've got the other ones, the zealots, who are preoccupied and fanatical about dogma and canons only without having the balance of the spiritual life, which is not what St Nectarius did. St Nectarius was balanced, which we'll see. And I've done talks on that balanced spiritual life in the past. Miracle 2, this is another one, um, that's the next one I found. A girl who was left orphaned at an early age went to live with her auntie Suddenly, in January of 1925, she became possessed by an unclean spirit that tormented her dreadfully. Now, you might say, why is there an emphasis on this possession business? Because the, um, the true saints have power over unclean spirits. Christ had power over unclean spirits. And only Christ has power over unclean spirits. And he who he gives the grace as well, meaning to his saints. Some silly Greeks, they say, oh, the, I believe in the devil, I believe in the dark powers because even Christ himself was scared. Where, where did that come from? These are old women's, old wives' tales and stupidities. Christ was not scared of the demons. The demons were scared of him. It's just people make up things and then people believe them. And that's why it's important not to just listen to grannies and listen to people or whatever, and sometimes not even listen to priests. You must also be careful that what is being taught is orthodox. And that's why we're supposed to read orthodox books, especially lately those of the, of the, of the elders, because um, they help us to understand orthodoxy in the correct spirit in today's world. So that's why there's an emphasis on these possessed people because that was the first miracle that St Nectarius did when he went to Ergina was the possessed boy. Suddenly, in January of 1925, she became possessed by an unclean spirit that tormented her dreadfully. Whenever the demon heard the name of Metropolitan Nectarius, he convulsed the girl. The girl would start to shake. The relatives of the girl could not bear seeing her tormented and suffering. In May... 
they decided to bring her to the tomb of the saint and seek a cure. Upon arriving at the convent, the demon violently convulsed the girl, as I said before, that it's the way a person reacts to the holies. There's an example. Now, a psychiatrically disturbed person can also react like similar things because they can bring it on themselves and act possessed. That's why we need a discerning spiritual fathers to know what is mental uh, psychological problem and what is truly possession because sometimes the two can look similar. The main thing is the holies. And um, even if a psychiatrically disturbed person does it, sometimes you see that they don't react. So, you know, you know that's a story of itself, but we'll look at that later. Um, the nuns had to tie her with ropes so that they could bring her to the tomb of the saint. That's interesting because my father, uh, not that he was very religious, but when he was, I was young, he didn't really say much. Too busy, shops, etc. But he did say one, couple of stories. One of them was when I was young, he said that, because he's from Ithaca, which is right next door to Kefalonia. Now, Kefalonia, that's an island, the other one's an island, he has the, is famous for the relics of St. Erasmus. And St. Erasmus is also incorrupt. He's a monastic saint. And he said to me, because it's close, the, his island, Ithaca to Skefalonia, that on the feast day of St. Erasmus, he, he went over as a young teenager, boy, whatever, I don't know what he was. And he said that, he told me the story that he went there and a lot of the people were in chains. And that he said that he saw that the chains were taken off of some of them that were cured, that he actually saw that. Um, that um, miracle. So, yes, a lot of the possessed people are um, restrained. Sometimes their strength of them is so much that they even break the chains. We read, we read all that in the Gospels and in the lives of saints. So in this case, they took some ropes, tied up the girl to bring her to the saint's tomb. Those presents witnessed how the enemy, the devil, tortured the girl the tomb of the saint then began vibrating. After some time, the wicked spirit left the girl. I was once, no, not, uh, I've been to St. Erasmus a few times, but some people here have been, and they were present at the, at the feast day of St. Erasmus, where the abbess was standing there, and they brought in a possessed woman, and the, pers the possessed woman went up to the abbess and gave her the biggest kick on, and hit and hit picked her leg with his heavy-duty shoes. And the abbess just stood there and kept on praying. Um, so possessed people have an animosity towards holies, towards the saints. They blaspheme. They distort. Their tongues come out and make change of faces. Um, and also they can tell the sins of people, which is another characteristic of possessed people, is that they actually expose people's sins, unconfessed sins, not confessed. So, which, of course, who, how would they know? A psychiatrically disturbed person wouldn't know your sins. But the demons know your sins. So it's the demons that reveal it through the possessed person. So that's another thing of you know that something wrong. When psychiatrists hear about that, they go, oh, I'm, I'm, I know, um, they get confused. They go, oh, no, they must have known and someone must have told them. Um, but, of course, the only problem is that when the, when the demons start saying their stuff, then they run away. 
The girl then decided to dedicate herself to God. She became a nun at the convent and was tonsured with the name Metrodora. So another one that became a nun. She also donated a silver vigil lamp to the glory of the saint in commemoration of her deliverance. Now, we go to 1926. That happened in 1925. In 1926, an organisation was formed in Athens called the Orthodox Christian Society St. Nectarius of Pentapolis. Now, we shall note there that they, this society called themselves Orthodox Christian Society St. Nectarius, even though it had, he had not been canonised yet. And this was in 1926. The saint died in 1920, which means this happened six years after the saint's repose. This society or organisation was involved with religious and charitable activities. So that's interesting that, and this organisation will come back to later on. Now, Archimandrite Joachim Spetsieris, I'll just call him Archimandrite Joachim, was a former student and close friend of Saint Nectarius. So when Saint Nectarius was the principal or the, the dean of the ecclesiastical school, in Athens, which is still there, that was the only job he could get. And he was happy to do that because he influenced a lot of young men who later on became holy priests. Archimandrite Joachim was one of them. Um, even I think he was already a priest when he was a student. I think if I remember right. Anyway, he was an author of a large number of spiritual books. One of the books he wrote in 1929 was called biographical sketch of our ever-memorable Holy Father and Hierarch Nectarius, Metropolitan of Pentapolis. This was the second biography of the saint. The first one was written in 1921 by the Cretan monk. Now we've got a second biography. Like with Elder Paisios, for example, there was, um, they've done, a, they've, a few people have written, now this is the last one here. This one they say is the, is the full version, Elder Pais of Manathos, as I said, there's quite a few of them, by priest monk Isaac. Now, he, I know, I don't know him personally, but I know he used to live near the cell of Elder Paisios, very close, just a little bit further down. I think I've seen him. Um, and he wrote this life because he knew him personally. Perhaps the saint even confessed to him because this, um, it doesn't matter if you're a saint, you still have to confess. And so that's what happened with St. Nectarius. All these biographies were being written. Now this is another one, the second one. Archimandrite Joachim wrote the following about St. Nectarius. Quote, I too went to the convent of the ever-memorable most holy Nectarius because I had been hearing a great deal about the sacred body. Now I confess with absolute sincerity that when I approached the tomb to pray, I smelled the fragrance of the holy body and I was so moved that I cried out with all my heart and all my soul, truly the metropolitan of Pentapolis Nectarius has received from God the gift of sainthood like the saints of our orthodox faith. Now Archimandrite Joachim is not just an insignificant person, he's actually become quite an, uh, he was a, a, a also known as being a very, very well-respected clergyman of the Greek church. So his words are valuable, not just someone that just said it. 
Around 1930, which is 10 years after the repose of St. Nectarius, his tomb was once again open. Remember that it was open the first time after five months to make a new tomb. After three years it was open and then the Archbishop Chrysostom came and said, put it back in the ground and wait four years. Well, they didn't wait four years, they waited seven, it looks like. And after 10 years that the saint has been in, been passed, has um, died, they opened it up again. As before, he was found to be incorrupt. He appeared as if he was sleeping and once again the strong fragrance of myrrh came from his body. In 1934, 14 years after the repose of the saint, a doctor was coming from one of the villages on horseback and was caught in a very heavy rain in the area of the convent. He got down from his horse and went and stood under a tree. Remember, as I said before, there was, I don't know when the cars came, but it sounds like a doctor, horse, must have not been there yet. Um, I'm sure he would have had enough money to buy a car. It was raining so hard and it seemed that it wasn't going to stop. Because he was close to the convent, he decided to take shelter there. So he went and knocked at the convent and the nuns allowed him to stay the night in the guest house. Remember, St Nectarius built the guest house with his own hands. He had known Metropolitan Nectarius while he was living, the doctor knew him, but he did not have much respect for him because he was not a religious man, because he was a a man of science. He was educated and he religion is for backward people in their minds. Not all doctors, of course, some doctors believe. But unfortunately, there is a, sometimes the more educated you become, the far away you are from God because we begin to worship our minds instead of God. So that's what happened with a lot of these people. They didn't believe. He had heard about the incorrupt relics of the Holy Nectarius and the miracles that were occurring, and he was curious to investigate, as a doctor, the relics. He wanted to investigate, examine it. He's a doctor, you know. He wanted to do like, a, what, like an autopsy, who knows what he wanted to do. So he went, while it was still light, to where the tomb was outside the church. Outside of the church. He began to pull off the heavy slab which was on top as it was not fastened in any manner. He pulled it down to the waist of the saint. At that very moment, a nun appeared and she began to cry out, what are you doing there? What are you doing opening our elder's grave? The doctor replied, I just wanted to take a look. But you did not, you, but you did not have permission, she insisted, and began to call out to the other sisters. Seeing that the doctor refused to stop, the nun ran off to alert the other sisters he quickly took the opportunity to examine the relics of the saint. There, then a number of the sisters arrived and closed the marble tomb, telling him off, obviously. Later, the doctor said, he, he admitted, this is, what he, this is what he, his findings of his examination. I was very amazed to see that it was the father, Nectarius, that we all knew, and that he could still be recognised from his face and expression. Even his beard was intact, I pulled at some of his beard, but it would not come out. I touched his hand and saw that it was, it was skin and that it had not shriveled up. He could be recognised by anyone who had known him when he was alive. So the unbelieving doctor confesses, maybe he still didn't believe, who knows. 
Because remember, they have, they have uh, certain interpretations. It's the temperature, it's the condition. They have all these, like, but now when they find people in, when they find people that die and they don't become bones, they, they, um, their bodies smell and all that. They say, oh, it's the chemicals, it's the preservatives. Or they say it's the soil. That's why when they unburied him, even though he was a blasphemer, um, that's not because he's, he's like that. It's because he was, he, um, it was the soil. But the yaya next door, in the same soil, is bones. So I don't know, unless the soil's concentrated just on that, which has this miraculous special additives and preservatives to make his uncle to be incorrupt, but the other lady on the other side who becomes bones. You see, there's all these stupid things. Um, when people are unbelievers, they become illogical. They say that people that are faith are illogical, but they're illogical. I don't know what happened to the doctor, whether he believed or not, doesn't say, probably he didn't. Many priests and men of science came to investigate the supernatural phenomenon. They could only come to one conclusion that the body of Metropolitan Nectaris of Patopolis remained incorrupt and emitted a sweet fragrance which could not be explained. So scientists came and priests even came to have a look. And they examined the body with permission and they said that it was incorrupt. You see, the, the communist back in 1919 when the revolution occurred, they went possessed and they started to collect all the relics from the monasteries and the churches of the saints. They collected, oh, I don't know, um, especially the incorrupt ones because they were saying to the people, these aren't real. These are made out of wood or they're stuffed or whatever. They're not real. So they stole them from all over Russia. I forgot the number, hundreds of them actually because there's a lot of incorrupt relics and different relics but let's say the incorrupt ones. And they got their big scientists to examine them and then the because the, science, the scientists were saying beforehand it's impossible for bodies to be incorrupt scientifically impossible, that's what they said, and that the church to make money is tricking the people. The relics that people are venerating in the monasteries and churches are made out of wood or some other false things, I've forgotten how. So they took them and examined them, big Soviet scientists, and they wrote a whole report about it. And the report was that the relics are incorrupt, that there's skin, that there's the flesh, this, that, whatever, everything, the hair, everything. Later on, the poor things, they didn't know what to do. So they changed it and they go, under certain con climatic conditions that, the that a person's body can remain incorrupt, like in the deserts, in the desert or some, you know, in... Um, other areas like cold areas or something like that. Obviously, the body's frozen. We would, if you put someone in a fridge, they're not going to decompose, are they? And then, as for the desert, um, some of them, under certain, when they're buried there, some of them actually remain intact. But as soon as you touch them, they dissolve into like soap. So, they confessed the truth. They put, because they couldn't do anything about it now, they put the relics into museums. 
near dead rats and dogs and said, these also are relics. They put signs in front of the rats, in front of the dogs. These also are relics. The people came, some to mock, but many of the believers came to venerate the relics in the museums. And then later on when they saw they couldn't stop it, whatever, they just quickly hid them somewhere. Many of these now have been returned. So the communists, the atheists, whatever, at the end they confessed the truth. The truth is that the relics are incorrupt. In 1937, a third biography was published in which Metropolitan Nectarius is said to be a saint. It was written by Archimandrite Theodosios Papa Constantino, the priest monk who helped the saint established Holy Trinity Convent. If you remember from talk number three, the last one, part three, that the saint left this priest monk who was on the island to take care of the nuns, do services and help them a bit. So he also knew the saint personally. He was involved with the establishment and uh, he wrote a book called Service and Miracles of our father among monastic saints, Nectarius. So he specifically calls him a saint, even though he had not yet been canonised. Approximately 20 years after his blessed repose, the relics began to decompose. After a period, only his bones remained. As with many saints, his precious and holy bones continued to give off a wondrously sweet fragrance. Any item that was brought into contact with the holy bones would also keep the same sweet fragrance. The question is why? The, fanatic, the, the fanatics said it's because his monasteries with the new calendar and all these stupidities and that's why he, he, he dissolved and another mad thing like that. Why was he incorrupt and then he became corrupt? Like meaning he decomposed. One of the saints' spiritual children was a wealthy woman from Piraeus. She used to visit the convent for confession with the elder. So when the elder, while the elder was in Athens as the dean of the school, people would go to him for confession and they would come to listen to his sermons. After he went to Aegina, some people still wanted to confess to him or wanted to begin confessing to him, so they would go over with the ferry boat and go over to Aegina. This woman was one of them. She was, when she found out that the saint's body had decomposed, she became very upset. She cried inconsolably day and night. She had hoped that the saint's relics would remain incorrupt even as did those of St. Dionysius in her homeland of Zakynthos. So this woman originally was born on the island of Zakynthos. Now, as I said, there is Kefalonia, which has the incorrupt relics of St. Erasmus. There's the island of Zakynthos, which has the incorrupt relics of St. Dionysius. And we have, Saint, we have the island of Corfu, which has the incorrupt relics, one of the best incorrupt relics of Saint Spiridon, which is 17, about 1,700 years old. 
I personally knew the priest who took care of the relics. And uh, he said to me that um, the face of the saint is dark because of the fact of all the oil lamps in that, because they have them in that little room there. Uh, not very good climatic conditions, as the atheist said, to be in that, in that because firstly, Corfu is very hot, tonight, like Greece in the, in the summer, and they've got the saint in this little, like a little room where people come to venerate with, I don't know how many um, oil lamps, so it's really hot. And yet he said that because they change his shoes often so that they cut the shoes off and make them so people can take little pieces of the saints uh, which have been in contact with the body. And that, uh, when he says when we take off the shoes, he says underneath the saint's skin is pink, beautifully preserved. They're one of the best preserved relics and his relics are 1,700 years old. The Roman Catholics, when they took over the island at one stage, the, you know, the whatever, Venetians, I don't know who they are, I don't know the history much, but they wanted to take the, um, the church and um, the, um, the saint did not allow it. I can't remember the full story, wonderful, but uh, the governor of the, of the island, the Latin governor, Anyway, there was a big thunderstorm and lightning hit and basically burned his place down. I think he got killed and things like that. The saint did not want his church to be under the Latins, under the Roman Catholics. Why the saint, Why has God allowed those three islands to have incorrupt saints? Look at, well, let's, let's look at that as time goes on. Interesting. One, two, three. I'll give you a little clue. What's to what's to the west of what's to the west of that of those three islands? Who knows about our Greek friends here? Do you know what's the west of Kefalonia, Zakintho, and uh, Corfu? Italy. Italy's to the west. Those islands were taken over many times by the Latins. So. You see, we're going to come to why God allows sometimes the saints to be incorrupt and sometimes to become just bones. Why does he allow that? Some saints, we don't even know where their bones are. Some saints were burnt. Some saints were eaten by the lions and things like that. No bones at all. God has his reasons for everything. We'll come to that. But that was a good clue. Something to do with the West. Perhaps this woman believed that the saints who remained incorrupt are greater than those whose bones only remained. One evening, she saw St. Natarius near her bed. He said to her, why are you so sad? It was I who prayed to the Lord that my body might decompose. I desired this so that pious Orthodox Christians might have the consolation of my relics, which can be sent around Greece and the whole world, end quote. That's what he said to the woman. And what happened later on? Exactly. She then awoke and was filled with thankfulness. So... Now we come to the section incorrupt versus corrupt relics. The, the remains, the relics in other words, of the saints are revered. We venerate them whether or not they are incorrupt out of respect for the holy life of the materic death of the saint. So whether the saint's bones just remain or whether the saint is incorrupt, we still venerate. 
Some examples of great saints whose relics are not incorrupt are Saint Seraphim of Sarov, one of the, it's a universal saint now. I mean, it was a Russian saint, and he was um, a great, is a great Orthodox saint, but yet only his bones remain. Saint Herman of Alaska is another great Russian saint, Saint Pandalimon. A lot of these people, a lot of these saints, only their bones remain. The head of Saint Pandalimon is in the monastery of Saint Pandalimon of Mount Athos. So those who go there, they have his relic, his, his, his skull, as they have many relics. A lot of them were stolen by the Latins, uh, but they didn't steal everything. A lot of times when the, when the monks of Mount Athos knew that the Latins were coming to, their, to, to Mount Athos, they quickly hid them everywhere so that they won't steal them. But they did steal quite a lot. Why do some, re why do some relics remain incorrupt while others don't? Now we come to the example of Saint Spiridon, Saint Erasmus, Saint Dionysius. The reason, well, Saint Spiridon lived in the time of the first ecumenical council. That was the council which was formed by Saint Constantine, brought together because of the dogma that Christ, the, the heresy that Christ wasn't God. And Saint Nicholas was present. Saint, um, Saint Nicholas was present, oh, sorry, Saint Spiridon was pre present. Saint Nicholas was the one that slapped Arius, who was the main person who made up this heresy, across the face because he was blaspheming. Saint Spiridon saw, and being a, he was very simple, he was just a shepherd, he was married before too, and he, he um, saw that words can't get through to this monster because he just wouldn't listen to anything when the holy fathers were telling him and showing him from the bible and the church's tradition that christ is god he wouldn't listen he said that christ was created there was a time when when christ wasn't anyway so the blasphemy was going on and saint spiridon got up took a tile and he said in the name of the father and then i forgot the exact story now but i think fire sh shot up from the tile in the, of the sun, water, and of the Holy Spirit, the sand and the tile dissolved, and people were shocked. And he said, just like one tile, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. He was, Arius obviously was offered to do the same, he couldn't. And then he said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then it all came back together again. Saint Achilleos was also there, and he said to Arius, um, the same thing, he had a rock and he made oil came out and he said, you do it, he couldn't do it. Anyway, from that miracle, from the teachings of the church, etc., the Holy Fathers came to the conclusion that Christ is God, together with the miracles and the teachings of the church. And Iris was condemned. Saint Spiridon, that was very significant what he did. Because if the church, without the dogma that Christ is God, is worthless. And, 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 uh, that's why Saint Spiridon's relics remain incorrupt, so people can know and remember that miracle which occurred, and that Orthodox Christians will remember. And as we have for 1,700 years, because when we think of Saint Spiridon, we think of that synod. When we think of Saint Spiridon, we think of the tile. When we think of Saint Spiridon, we think of Arius and his blasphemy, and that and those relics of Saint um, 
It's been used on R as a testimony to say, this is the truth. But he was taken to Corfu. He wasn't from Corfu, but he was taken to Corfu, some people, when they escaped from, I don't know, I can't remember now. So then we have St. Dionysius from Zakynthos. He remained incorrupt. And St. Erasmus, he remained incorrupt. And the reason why is because that became a wall to protect Greece from the Latins. Because the Latins took over those islands and there was the fear that the Orthodox would change and become Roman Catholic because, because that's their mania, mania. They want to convert. And that became a protection when, because the people of those islands say, why should I become? You don't have these type of things. Why should I change my religion? And that was, and also to protect us for the rest of Greece as well, to protect us from them, to show the power of the Orthodox Church. St. Cosma says that God allowed out of his mercy for Greece and the other Balkan countries to be taken over by the Turks rather than the Catholics because the Turk, he said, you can always bribe them. But the Latins will not rest until they convert people into their faith. If those countries were taken over by them, because there was fear of that, then today Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, all those countries where the Turks were would not be Orthodox. They would be Latin. They would have... Uh, we know what happened in Serbia. Nearly one million, Greek, uh, one million Serbian Orthodox were killed because they wouldn't convert to Catholicism during the Second World War. And that's why the saints said God showed mercy to Greece and the other countries because um, we, um, 400 years in some parts and 500 years in the northern areas, the Turks were in control. And yet, orthodoxy survived. That would not have happened if they came. So it's good for us to know that there are special reasons, like St John the Russian. What was happening with St John the Russian when, he, when his relics, though his relics are incorrupt as well. His, his relics are on the island of Evia. And... What was, why, why was that? Why did that happen? Why did God allow that? Because many of the Orthodox Christians were converting to Islam. And they, um, by seeing the, the relics of St. John incorrupt, he was a Russian, but he was taken to the Greek areas and then the people kept him. And the people saw and said, this is orthodoxy, let us not convert to that religion. Because the people were being pressured. Now, just quickly, another little thing, just to show you. It, it's, it doesn't mean that one saint is greater than the other. For example, there's a feast day in the Russian church, which is the feast of the uncovering of the tran and transfer of the relics of three holy horacs who were metropolitans of Moscow and all Russia. Not important, but what is important, just in that, in that life, look what it says. They uncovered these relics, so they, like they did to St. Nectarius, and they found him incorrupt. In this case, there was three there, and they found. They said they found Metropolitan Jonah to be incorrupt. But Fotios, another Metropolitan, had decayed in part, 
and Cyprian had decayed completely, leaving only bones. What am I trying to say here? Is one greater than the other? No, that's God's will. Different times, different purposes, there's, there's circumstances, etc. For example, the incorrupt right hand of St. John Chrysostom is kept at the Holy Monastery of Philothelma in Athos, Greece. Um, well, the incorrupt right hand of St. John Chrysostom, what did he do with his right hand? He wrote those wonderful works that he wrote, which have filled the Orthodox Church. He's the greatest, one of the greatest writers in the Orthodox Church. We say, the mouth, the mouth of Christ is St. Paul. Whatever St. Paul says, it's what Christ says. And the mouth of St. Paul is St. John Chrysostom. Whatever St. John Chrysostom says, it's as if St. Paul is speaking because we know from the life of St. John Chrysostom that when his cell attendant was looking through the hole, through the keyhole, because someone came to see the, the, the St. John Chrysostom and he couldn't disturb him. He says, look, I can't disturb the patriarch because there's someone in there with him. And after a few days, St. John Chrysostom said to his assistant, where's this man I've been waiting for? He goes, oh, you know, your eminence, I couldn't, I couldn't um, disturb you because you had a person there. And he goes, which, which person? There was no person in here. because I saw a man, a bald man, whispering in your ear. And you were writing. And St. John Chrysostom goes, there was no man here. And then he goes, how did this person look? And there was an icon of St. Paul. And he goes, he looked exactly like that man. And that shows that what St. John Christum was in writing was inspired by God and obviously St. Paul. So we say the mouth of Christ is St. Paul, the mouth of St. Paul is St. John Chrysostom. His right hand that wrote all those wonderful things, he's incorrupt. And also another one, the incorrupt hand of St. John the Baptist, which baptised Christ. With that hand is where he baptised Christ. All these have, 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 have um, significance. Not one is greater than the other, etc. But um, some people say oh, it's because of virginity. Some saints died, but Saint Spiridon was married and he had he had a child. Up to this point, it can be seen that there was an emphasis on the incorrupt relics of the Holy Nectarius. So people had this bit of bit of a, some people had this obsession to say he's incorrupt, he's incorrupt. That's why he's a saint. Um, and his miracles. As I said earlier on, there's too much emphasis on miracles and things, and we've got to be careful because if you just look at the miracles, that could be satanic miracles. We have to look at the saint's entire life. Like, as I said, the fellow in England, this magician guy who walked on the water, and there was all these people there. Some said it was, it was false. Maybe it was. Personally, when I saw it, so he walked on the water... And at one stage, the man became paralysed. Now, they say that was part of the trick. I believe he became possessed because the demons can um, do these things. He, they can because we know from the lives of saints that people were picked up by the demons and taken through the air. So whether this guy was false or not, if someone looked at them and go, oh, he must be special because only Christ can walk on water. See, we don't just take this galah that just did one thing and say that he's a saint. Because if that's the case, then we've got to go and look at someone else that's doing a miracle. Someone else is doing a miracle. We don't just look at miracles. We look at the entire life. So some people were just looking at the relics. Some people were just looking at the miracles. But we, we don't do that. Let's have a look. Unfortunately... 
Orthodox Christians tend to focus more on incorrupt relics and miracles. This can lead to honouring the saints, those who in actual fact are not saints. We must look at every aspect of the person. In my earlier years as an Orthodox Christian when I first came to the church, I believed, wrongly, that an incorrupt body automatically meant that a person was a saint. That's what I believed. And as a lay person, I used to say that incorrupt relics can only be found in the Orthodox Church. Furthermore, I would emphasise that the incorruption of relics was a sign that the Orthodox Church is the true church. I thought no other religion had incorrupt relics. So this is... And I used to teach um, as a lay person. I used to do some um, lessons, to, to some talks, and I used to say that. And it's not completely wrong, but there's some... There, I wasn't fully correct because I, was, I didn't know. But later I discovered that there are examples of people who are not saints whose relics remained incorrupt. One example is that of some oriental swamis, like from those India and all that, um, whose bodies were incorrupt long after death. And the explanation is whether by some natural means, which we said before, sometimes they're preserved because of some conditions, or... Uh, because of the way of life that they had, because they were very ascetical, they fasted a lot, and it doesn't mean their fasting was holy, but uh, it, it did something to their bodies, I don't know, whatever, and, or by a demonic counterfeit. Remember, the devil loves to do, to mimic, to counterfeit everything in the church. So Christ walks on water, makes someone walk on water. Christ did miracles, do someone do miracles. So... The devil likes to do these, what's called, like we have counterfeit money. So you've got $100 and it's counterfeit, it's not worth anything. So these miracles can be counterfeit. The devil can do miracles. And we've, talked, we've spoke about this in talks 32, 33, 34, 35, 36 and 37, all about that. And I don't want to repeat, as I've done a lot of work on that. You can refer to those. So... Other examples, bodies can be preserved for centuries due to, it's true, some soil and climatic conditions. But these ones, as I said before, are when they're frozen or when they're in the desert, the certain conditions, but when you touch them, they dissolve. Orthodox saints don't dissolve. There are also ca cases of very sinful people who remained incorrupt, as I mentioned earlier. And when you tell someone that someone is a saint because they're incorrupt, they get confused. They go, oh, well, that means that Swami Saravati, whatever, of India, that they're saints as well. So that's why we mustn't make those statements. Let's see how we should make them. In order to protect the faithful, the church councils many times have forbidden the recognition of the reposed as saints based only on the incorruption of their relics. Moscow Council of 1667. So in Moscow, one of the councils in 1667 said, we will not say that someone's a saint only because they're incorrupt. That's not enough. That's dangerous. And we, we forbid people to look at that. And some people would say St. Nectarius was a saint because he was incorrupt. Not enough. Maybe because he did miracles. Not enough. Therefore... The incorruption of a dead body is no guarantee of sanctity. But of course, the incorruption of the bodies of the righteous 
is accepted as one of the divine signs of the sanity. So if the person was righteous and is incorrupt, we can say, okay, that's one sign. Now let's look at the other signs. What's the next sign? Miracles, next sign, the holiness of life, etc., etc., etc. So we've got to look at all aspects of the person. But just to say that, so that's the mistake I made in my younger years where I thought that that's the correct, but you get people get mixed up. The truth of the matter is the incorrupt relics of the Orthodox saints are different to the other. Firstly, the ones that have been excommunicated or have died blasphemous or whatever, they stink. Orthodox saints don't stink. The other thing is when you go near an Orthodox saint, there's grace. It's like you feel there's a peace, there's a holiness about it. Next is the is the um, is the um, the myrrh, but the devil can counterfeit that too. The smell, got to be careful. Uh, but when you put it all together, the relics, the myrrh, the miracles, the life, the orthodoxy. What happens if this person that died is incorrupt, and we find out that he used to pray with heretics, that he used to say the holy fathers were backward. And his remains are incorrupt. Does that mean that that's, he's a saint? Or is he incorrupt because he was excommunicated by God? That's why it's dangerous. And there's truth that those who do, there were some cases of some Athenite monks who prayed, who prayed or did, some, did liturgies with Latins when they came to Mount Athos, they did not decompose. Does that mean they're holy? Hmm. And while they're doing the mass or the liturgy together with these, with the Latins, they're saying, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what they say. But Orthodox say, who proceed from the Father. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of who proceeds from the Father. That's what Christ himself teaches. That's what the church teaches. In the first ecumenical council, the creed was put together. And in the second ecumenical council, but, and it says, the fathers say, whoever changes the creed, anathema. And yet, people, maybe even some here today, send their children to Catholic schools where they attend the mass and say the creed in a heretical way. The creed that is forbidden. So, how can that person be incorrupt? More so, his incorruption could come the fact that he's been excommunicated. I have some excellent examples, which I'll do in another talk, I haven't got time today, of um, some examples of St. Vinicius, where he, there was a woman that wouldn't decompose because she was um, an anathematized, and then she wouldn't decompose, and then he had to do prayers for her, and then she, decom then she did decompose, and another person, Philothus of Arcus, etc., but we'll look at another time. And another indication of sanctity, besides from the relics and the miracles, is the fact, oh, well, sorry, this is the next one, is the fact that confirmed healings have occurred as a result of prayer made to the saints for their intercession before God. Healings that have been confirmed by doctors, true healings, um, but we have to remember Orthodox life, which means 
orthopraxia, means orthodox life, and orthodoxia, which means orthodox faith. As orthodox Christians will be judged, are we keeping the faith and are we doing the right life? Orthodox faith, the dogmas, the truth, the canons, if we keep that, but we don't have an orthodox life, we can't be saved. If we have an orthodox life where we pray and fast, etc., etc., but we haven't got orthodox dogma, we haven't got the faith, we can't be saved. The two come together like a bird, the fathers say. You need two wings to fly. I used to have pigeons when I was younger. And what you do is when you buy a new pigeon, and now some of you might say I'm not interested in pigeons, but you, you have to listen. Um, <laughs> the pigeons... When you first buy pigeons, they won't stay at your home. So when you open the cage, they fly back to wherever they come from. So what we used to do is we used to cut the, the, the feathers of the wing. So we just cut it. It doesn't hurt it. Just um, cut it. So don't tell any animal rights people. So we, we cut the wing. So when the bird tries, the pigeon tries to fly, it goes like that and, flop, and flops down because he can't, hasn't got the balance. The same with chickens. When you have chickens, I have chickens too, by the way. And... Um, <laughs> We got to cut one one side of their wings because they tend to just they can jump up on on um, what do you call those things on the um, fences and go out. Because once someone said to me that there's a chicken outside, it's on the road. Is it yours? And I said, oh, just I'll cut the wings. So that's the same as orthodoxy. Orthodoxy needs two wings to go to heaven. Orthodox life and orthodox faith. Without with one of them missing then we're going to be like the pigeons and the chickens that go like that. They actually spin around on their side and, they, and they, um, they can't jump, they can't fly, they can't do anything. By the decision of the Holy Synod of Greece, the island of Aegina was attached to the nearby metropolis of Idra and Spetses. It was no longer under Athens. And the name of the metropolitan of Idra, Spetses and Aegina, because that was his, his title, was Procopios. Metropolitan Procopios was known for being somewhat worldly. He was involved in secular and ecclesiastical politics. A bit like I would say in Greek, cosmikos, worldly, you know, not a very spiritual person. It is important to know that Metropolitan Procopius was somewhat suspicious, suspicious of anything to do with relics and miracles. Sounds like me, but doesn't it? So, he, was, he didn't like it. Why? The reason for his attitude was the fact that some scandals had occurred in the Greek church regarding relics and miracles. Some people were saying, oh, this is the relics of St. John Christopher. Come to my church so they can get money. That, that did happen. They weren't the relics. They were making them up. So there was a lot of scandals that some relics were true and some relics were not. Some people took advantage of it to, get, to make money. That happened. Saint, um, Judas took advantage too. He said to Christ, I'll take care of the money box. Because they had a box where people used to donate. And, and Judas volunteers said, I'll take care of the box. Christ knew he was going to, because Christ being God, knew he was going to steal the money. But he allowed it. Sometimes these things are allowed. Why? To test our faith. So these, um, this, per, this bishop was not, was, was, didn't like the things about relics because he thought it could have been like some type of a, a trick that some people play to get money. He heard about, he heard much about Metropolitan Nectarius and admired him. What exactly did he admire about him? What impressed this, this Metropolitan about him? Well, perhaps it was the fact that the, perhaps it was that the famous Metropolitan of Petopolis, Nectarius, 
was the most gifted theologian of those times who produced great theological works that were even recognised by Oxford University. He, he produced works that were equivalent to the Holy Fathers of old. He was a deep and, and, and enlightened theologian, just like St Justin Popovich, who is known as the greatest dogmatic theologian of the 20th century. So St Nectarius was a, was a great theologian. Maybe he, so maybe he was impressed by that because worldly people usually impressed. Ah, oh, he's educated. Oh, you know, like those type of things. But was he impressed by the saints' virtues and holy life? We don't know. Well, let's have a look and know what happens to him. That's what we should be impressed with most of all, is that the life is also orthodox, not just the dogma, not just the theological. We have today many theologians in the church, including bishops, who produce theological works which I must say, uh, a lot of them are worth nothing. Why? Because they don't have orthodox life. If they haven't got an orthodox life, how are they producing theological works? The reason why St Nectarius produced great works is because he was holy and he was inspired by the grace of God. These people don't fast, a lot of them. They don't even believe in communion often, even though some of them are clergy. They don't pray much, if at all, and they're just university intellectuals and they produce works that when you read them you feel, what is that? So we don't read those things. We read the writings of holy people, people who are known not because they're just theologians, graduated or whatever and write works, but people that are known for their orthodox life. I will not touch personally... If someone says to me, oh, there's this bishop and he wrote all this theologian, he wrote these works, I'm not interested. I want to know his life. What's his life? Does he, does he believe in the liturgical life of the church? Like St Nectarius, who believed that someone should commune often and who used to hold services? There are priests today who hate services, who hate orthodox services. They don't do them hardly at all. Only when they have to do them for their, to get the, the money for the candles. And because that's their job. But they don't like services. St Nectarius served every day. He went to services every day. He was a man of prayer. He was a holy person. So yes, that's why he produced these great works. These other people, their works, you read them and you feel like vomiting. Sorry, I don't mean to be, I'm not trying to be rude. It's actually because they are writing with a bad spirit. They're writing with intellectual pride, not with the grace of God. Now, who's who in the zoo? Well, we'll have to look at, as we said, we have to look at the, their spiritual life. So let's just stick to the ones that we know are holy. Now that Aegina was under his authority, Metropolitan Procopios decided to visit the convent. During his visit, one of the nuns enthusiastically mentioned to the Metropolitan how the holy Nectarius's relics were not only incorrupt for 20 years, but emitted a sweet fragrance and that now the saint's bones also are fragrant. She told him about all the miracles that were occurring because of the saint, such as the healing of the very sick, the dying and the possessed. The bishop with a smile and in a mocking tone expressed, what, are you, what, who are you saying is fragrant and performs miracles? Nectarius, yes, your eminence, who else? Stop this nonsense and stop trying to convince me with these stories. He laughed and said, listen to what, she's, um, what she says about Nectarius. Who was he anyway? He was scared of Patriarch Sophronius and submitted to his every command. So 
as we know that uh, Saint Nectarius was persecuted and thrown out of the Church of Alexandria because of patriarchs of Rhonius. Now this silly man is actually saying, um, who is Nectarius? He was, what was he? You know, he was scared of him. She wasn't scared of him, but anyway. Um, he was persecuted by him. And he was dismissing guys, miracles, relics, I don't want to hear any of this and whatever. So obviously, what did he admire? He didn't admire, obviously, his life, so he must have admired to me. I think he just admired the fact that his writings and things like that. That night, obviously the nuns were upset because he, the way his attitude was. That night, as he was sleeping in the saint's cell, one of the nuns heard him screaming and making strange noises as if he was being tormented. He kept on shouting out, Nectarius, Nectarius. She entered his room and found him on the ground squirming. After some time, he called the abbess and told her, you are correct, that Nectarius has become a saint. Together with the abbess, they went to the tomb of the saint. When he entered, he smelt the sweet fragrance coming from the relics of the saint, and he reverently venerated the tomb. From that day, he changed and became a very pious bishop. So, sometimes, all of us, we need shake-ups. Obviously, this person needed a big shake-up. Sometimes, even in our own life, we need a shake-up. We get sick, something can happen to our family, some afflictions. God allows these things to happen a lot of times to bring us on the true path. Because a lot of times we can think we're orthodox, like he probably thought he was orthodox, bishop. But really, he wasn't. So, after he was terrorised and he had that thing happen to him, he changed and became pious. The organisation mentioned above, the Christian Society, the Orthodox Christian Society of St. Nectarius Pedobolos, that was established in 1926, would celebrate the feast of St. Nectarius at the church of one of the main churches in Greece called Zodokopii, which is in Athens, that means life-giving spring. From 1945 to 1950, so for five, six years, this Christian society, St. Nectarius, would, do ser would actually organise for services to occur in a church in Athens before the saint was canonised. As I said, the Russian church abroad with St. John did not allow that at all. And I'm sure there were many bishops, as we'll see later on, who wouldn't have allowed it. But obviously some bishops because Athens has many bishops, allowed it, even before the recognition of the saint. This happened, uh, in addition to this, in 1951, it, this society was officially recognised as a religious and charitable organisation and they continued to hold services in honour of St Nectarius at another parish in Athens. Why well, I'm bringing this up so I would say it would seem that some bishops did not oppose the veneration of St. Nectarius before his formal recognition as a saint. Remember, this is now, we're talking about 20, 30 years after he reposed. Many miracles had occurred, publications about him, and in the, in the mind of a lot of people, he was a saint, regardless of whether the church recognised it. And the, and the church... Um, a lot of times when the church recognises someone, like St. Sephora Sarov, it was the people, what, the church authorities? No, the people of Russia 
through the miracles and the going to his monastery where he was, his relics and the lives and the, all these things forced the synod to recognise him as a saint. First, the people recognise the person as a saint and then the synod just stamps the approval at the end. So in this case, we'll see how long the synod will take to, to recognise this great man as a saint. But I'm just saying here that they actually held services, full services in honour of the saint because services were written, which I'll tell you in, in a minute. Now, in 1952, in Crete, is a miracle three, not that only three miracles occurred, oh, this is my miracle three. In 1952 in Crete, a six-year-old boy named Hercules went to sleep after dinner in perfect health. In the morning, his mother tried to waken him for school but she found him paralysed. She immediately called the doctor, con uh, called the doctor Constantine Hiotakis. Now, the reason why all these names are here, there's actually more. They had addresses, hospitals. I, did, I left a lot of that stuff out. But the reason why they put that is so that people can know for sure that it's true. See, it's just not just saying the person, you know, down the street saw a miracle. How do we know? These are these are these are people can check evidence and and doctors and things. Who the, so Const Dr. Constantine came there who diagnosed the boy with acute cerebral tuberculosis, brackets, tuberculous meningitis. Is that, that, where is, the, is that how you say it now? Is that still a disease? Oh, yeah. He offered no hope of a cure or survival, saying that the child only had a few hours to live. Against the parents' wishes, the doctor made a surgical puncture, parenthesis, is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. Yep. In the spine, the examination of the fluid revealed the doctor's diagnosis to be correct. The auntie of the boy uh, privately complained to the doctor about the way he abruptly gave no hope to the parents because the, the doctor said he's only going to live in a few hours. She convinced him to write a prescription so that the mother might have some hope. Although the doctor knew that there was no cure, he agreed with her and just gave some prescription for some drug which he knew wasn't going to do anything just to help calm the family down. On the way to the pharmacy, she remembered, the auntie remembered, how she had heard about the new saint of Aegina, Nectarius. News about him had even reached as far as Crete. Well, we know now that it reached everywhere, but anyway. She then remembered that there was a local family that owned an icon of the wonder worker there, where, where she was living. She visited them and begged them with tears that they lend her the icon so that she might make the sign of the cross with it over her nephew. At the very moment that the aunt was asking for the icon, the nephew, so she was at her house asking for the icon, the nephew back at the house, suddenly shouted to his grandmother and mother, stop crying and I will get better. I was, I was told this by St Nectarius. They both asked, but when my child and how did, you, how did he tell you this? The boy answered, the saint came here, he looked like an old man with a long beard. He patted me on the cheek and said to me, tell your grandmother and your mother not to cry, I shall make you well. Do not listen to the doctor. Your auntie went and is bringing right now, and just that uh, he was going to, uh, it cuts what he, what was like his conversation was cut. At that moment, the auntie entered the building with both the icon and the medicine in hand. Before she came up the steps, young Hercules shouted, my auntie Stella is bringing St Nectarius. When the auntie entered the room, she wondered how the boy knew of this and she asked him, he cried out, the saint told me. She then approached with the icon 
and with it made the sign of the cross over Hercules, the boy. He then recounted to his auntie what he had seen. The icon was then placed inside the boy's pyjama shirt on his chest. After he was blessed by the icon, his previously paralysed hands began to move slowly. He then fell asleep. They then sang the suppletory canon like we did tonight, which most of you didn't come, which I'm not pleased with. I don't like that, I have to tell you. See, if I'm, what I'm going to say can make people not come. But I don't want you to come for me, I want you to come because of the, the word of God and the saint. I, you know, it's nice that we're all sitting together tonight and we're listening to the life, so we're all together. But before that, we have a service for one hour. And that is the best for the people to be present at the service, which was to St. Nectarius, pray for your needs, etc. And then you come in here, we sit down together, we listen to the talk and eat, etc. That's the nicest way. But some of you don't come. Now, some of you don't come for reasons. Sometimes it's children, sometimes it's sick. could be a lot of reasons. But I will tell you, I don't like it. It's not right. Come to the service beforehand. Don't disdain the services. They're very important. See, that's another thing. People love talks. See, this is one-sided. Go, oh, I love talks, I love talks. How about Orthodox worship? Oh, yeah, I like going to church late or once a week or something. But I love reading. See, one-sided. That's no good. We're going back again to the pigeon. Again, that's no good. We go one side. One side is reading, and the other side is also orthodox uh, worship, the services. That's where we receive the grace. And if we only have one, there are people that go to services but don't read anything. And we've got people that read a lot but that, and come to talks, but they don't come to services. No good. And as I'm obliged to tell you that. So, uh, they sang the suppletory canon to the saint with faith and reverence. After this, they let the child sleep. After two hours, he came to himself and shouted, I am well. They ran to his bedside and drew back to the, the covers. He was moving all his limbs. At that very moment, the doctor came to be with the boy in his last moments because the doctor says he's going to die. He asked the relatives how he was. He then heard the boy him answer for himself, I am well, doctor. The doctor examined the boy and remarked, do not rejoice in this sudden improvement. It sometimes occurs prior to death. He then left saying that in a few days it would be all over, even though before he said a few hours. So, I mean, changed his diagnosis. After three days, he returned and said, the boy is free to eat. It was not until the eighth day that he admitted, in brackets, humbled himself, he no, and he said, he no longer has need of me. He then at last acknowledged that only a miracle had healed the boy. Thus, Hercules rejoiced in, go in good health through the help of St. Nectarius. It should be noted that Orthodox Christians who have seen St. Nectarius do say that they see him as an old man wearing like a cap, as a monastic, uh, and that's how uh, he usually appears to people. He appears to them with a kind smile and consoles them. He advises he advised them to have patience and trust in God. This is what he usually does. When asked who he is, he replies, I am the former metropolitan of Pentapolis, Nectarius of Aegina. That's how he addresses himself. I love that. It's as if it's a, a, a smack in the face for those who, who actually threw him out of, of his position. 
the position that he wanted to get back, but they wouldn't give it to him. In June of 1953, the translation of the saint's honourable relics took place. His relics, which emanated a sweet-smelling fragrance, were removed from the marble tomb by Metropolitan Procopius in the presence of his clergy. This is in 1953. So we said the bones started to de decompose in 1940. He died in 1920. So 1953 makes 33 years after his death. They decided to remove his relics from the tomb. That's called the translation of the relics. Uh, the date of the feast of the translation, even though it was done in June, it later on the official date became the 3rd of November. So when we celebrate St Nectarius, we celebrate him on the 9th of November, but we also celebrate, there's a, probably his convent does, I think it's not uh, commonly done, but there's also the 3rd of November is another feast day for his translation of relics. The saint's sacred skull was encased in a special gold and silver bishop's mitre, those of you who received the pictures last night would have seen that. So when you go to St Nectarius, uh, they have his skull that's encased in the bishop's mitre, like the crown that the bishop wears, and they have a little trap door on the top, and you open it, and that people then can kiss the, the, the relic of the, 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 of the saint. So when pilgrims go, they open up the little door, and people venerate. Another part of the relics are kept in a silver chest. I don't know what part of his bones that is, but when you look at the pictures, you notice there's the mitre in front of the icon of the saint, and next to it is another chest, which is that. Now, but that's only, some, that's only part of his body. What happened to the rest, we'll see. Um, both the, these treasures are kept in the Holy Trinity Convent Chapel, where the saint served during his lifetime. Now, they've made a new church now, a very big church down the bottom. I don't know whether they've moved those relics down there. I don't know the story up to the time before that church was built, the relics were there. Now, I haven't been for many years. People, I don't know people that have gone. Have you gone? You said you went? No. The, um, an icon of the saint shown standing was painted by one of the nuns. I believe that's the one where the mitre is if, of, of the pictures you got. The chapel is adorned with many vigil lamps. Part of the saint's relics were also sent or were sent all over the world where they emit fragrance and benefit those who call upon the saint with faith. God allowed the relics of the saint to remain as bones so that the Orthodox Christians all over the world could venerate and receive benefit from them. Now, for, you, for those who are interested, at the St Nectarius Church, the Greek Orthodox Church in Burwood, at the back, when you enter in to the right, there is a little chapel, there's a little table in the middle there, and in that in that table, okay, I think they can do service on that, is a relic of the, of the saint. So people, often people go there and they've also got bottles of oil on the side which has been from, it's from the lambada, from the candil, what do you call it, from the oil lamp. Don't have to pay anything, it's there. If you want to give, you give, you don't, you don't. But the oil's there, you, people can go and take a bottle and have a bottle at their house and use it in time of need. As I said, there's a, a St Nectarius Church in Melbourne. There's a St Nectarius Church in Perth. I think there's a, or there's a monastery in Adelaide, I think. There's a St Nectarius in Brisbane. And all over the Greek Orthodox world, there's, there is um, uh, churches of St Nectarius. More than any other modern saint. 
We have already seen that from the time of his repose, St. Nectarius performed many miracles. However, after the removal of his relics in 1953, the number of his miracles and benefactions significantly increased. Like before, he, there was miracles. But after they removed his relics and started sending them everywhere, etc., the miracles multiplied significantly. Miraculous cures from all kinds of diseases, many considered incurable by doctors, have been reported. Some of the miracles have entered into a special register kept at the convent, while others have circulated in periodicals and books, which we'll see later on. Men, men of science and medicine have testified to the wonders and miracles performed by St. Nectarius. In other words, doctors and specialists, whatever you call them there, that they actually um, have certified that this person was dying or had this, and that he got better. So that's what it means by that. Also, there is a special glass cabinet, so, which is filled with valuable dedications of pious Christians that have been offered as gifts to the saint for the benefactions he had given to them. So again, in the pictures, or as you go, there's the mitre, there's the, the silver chest, and on the side there's a big glass cabinet, and hanging there's all gold rings and bracelets and crosses and all these things that people have dedicated to the saint in thanksgiving. Miracle 4. Among the offerings that are to be seen at the Holy Monastery of the Saint in Eyna, each of which corresponds to a miracle, there is a chain about a metre long that has, that has on it a note which says the following, quote, Having been tormented by an unclean spirit, I was cured by the help of Saint Nectarius on March 18, 1954, Ioannis Parascovopoulos of Patras. They usually give addresses and things like that. At the, at, the, at, the, at the Church of St. Nectarius at Burwood, I think I've noticed there, I think there's some crutches there. Someone obviously was, uh, had problems and he, left, and he left the crutches there. In Greece, there's walking sticks, frames, and, and a lot of things um, at these uh, shrines, not just St. Nectarius, other places too. Metropolitan Nectarius should be considered a saint not just because his relics were incorrupt, I've emphasized that, and later, his bones were because they were fragrant, or just his miracles. But we should also look at the purity of his life, and I've emphasised that. What's that. What do we mean? The keeping of the commandments of God, his orthodox publications, his orthodox preaching, his gift of foreknowledge that he knew the future, and his virtues. By virtues we should understand faith, love, and when we say love, we mean mercifulness and compassion, physical and spiritual works of mercy, which is talk 48, blessed are the merciful, that shall obtain mercy. I did a whole talk about what is almsgiving. It doesn't mean just give a dollar to the Red Cross. There's a whole thing about physical and spiritual works of mercy. I'm not going to go through it now. Um, he also, his patience in his sufferings and his persecutions, his, the fact that he could forgive his enemies, and we all know how hard it is to forgive our enemies. And yet he did forgive them. Seeking and accepting God's will and his humility. We look at everything, orthodox publications, his sermons, his orthodox life, all those things, not just one aspect. Why am I saying about the commandments? Why am I emphasising the commandments? Well, I've mentioned in the previous talk, what does um, Christ say? If you love me... Keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, 
and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. In other words, how can we obtain the Holy Spirit if we don't keep the commandments of God when Christ himself said that? And yet, people don't even know what the commandments are because they don't study the word of God. They think what? They think the commandments is just fasting. So we've got orthodox people that just fast. Then we've got orthodox people that just read. We've got orthodox people that might come to church a little bit. We've got orthodox people that might, might do some prayers, might not. But it says here, the commandments. What are the commandments? They're in the previous talks. I'm not saying that so people can buy the talks. I can't go through every single thing I've said in the past because then I'm going to lose my voice and it disrupts the talk. I've said it all before and you have to talk 44, 45, where I speak about you know, the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. St. Seraphim Sarov says that we obtain the, the Holy Spirit through the doing of good works. What are, do, what are good works? The commandments of God. How can we have a person that says, or we say, oh, he's a saint, but he didn't care about the poor. Every Orthodox saint cared about the poor. If you look at St. Nectarius' life, continually he gave money and helped the poor. And yet today... There are Orthodox Christians who say they're Orthodox and believe that because they give a dollar here or whatever they do a bit, that that means that they're helping the poor and that God is pleased with them. But that's not what, that's not what it means. It means you have to have pain. You have to care. And if we haven't got money to give, then we, at least we have that pain which replaces the money that we can't give to pray for the person, etc. All that's in the past talks. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Who's we? Capital. We means the Holy Trinity. So when someone keeps the word of God, which means when someone does the commandments, then the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit abides in the person. If we don't do the commandments, then God cannot come in a person who doesn't do the commandments. Now what happens if we sin? We have repentance. Of course, uh, St. Ignatius writes, the Russian saint, it is evident that the Lord comes to the heart of the person who carries out the commandments and makes his heart a temple and dwelling of God. This importance of the commandments. In those previous talks, I've actually said, what are the commandments? I kept on asking him. We have to study them. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we read the lives of saints. To find out what are the commandments. Some people think it just means to be a good person. A good person. I'm a good person. My dog had a, I made I gave twenty thousand dollars for my dog to get a hip replacement. I'm a good person. See, I'm good to the dog. Is that what it means to be a good person? True Christianity and true monasticism consists in the practice of the commandments of the gospel. Saint Ignatius says, true Christianity, true monasticism is based on the practice of the commandments of the gospel. Whether this practice is absent, so where this practice is absent, when, in other words, if we don't do the commandments, we don't try to do them, there is neither Christianity nor monasticism, whatever the outward appearance may be. You can look holy, but if someone's not practicing the commandments, then that's not Christianity. St. Nectarius did practice the commandments. And St. Ignatius even brings out, which I've said in the past, where very often there are ascetics Ascetics. Very often ascetics do not pay the least attention to the commandments of the gospel. 
and that they openly disregard the commandments and they do not value them or realise their importance in the least. What are they What are they doing? Fasting and things like that. But they don't think about the commandments. Instead, their spiritual life is based on bodily, ascetical exercises such as fasting, prostrations, standing, vigils, wearing chains, some of them, sleeping on the ground, beating their bodies and all these... All these, these things which are important to, to, with, with the ascetical life, but if you're doing that, which is what the, a lot of Hindus do too, by the way, they have these really strict asceticism. That's why their bodies become, they fast a lot, etc. But where's love? Where's the humility? Where's all these things that are important? So that's only one side. St. Nectarius was a true ascetic, but he also... He also um, uh, was orthodox in his faith, orthodox in his life, liturgical, he believed in the services of the church, the saints, etc., etc., etc. So, it is important to examine what men of great spirituality have to say concerning the sanctity of Met Metropolitan Nectaris, especially those who knew him personally and were influenced by him. The blessed elder Philothus the Rakos was a spiritual child of Saint Nectaris. In 1906, while serving in the army at Athens, as a, he, was a, he was a soldier, he began to confess to St Nectarius, who was then still the dean of the Rosarius Ecclesiastical School. And he said, later on as an elder, he said the ever-memorable Nectarius had the gifts of foreknowledge and prophecy, gifts which only the saints had. But it is not the few things that I mentioned above which prove his sainthood, things that actually happened to me. So he's saying... True foreknowledge and true prophecy is only for the saints. Of course, the devil can say things and all that, which for whatever. He said, but that's, he said, that is the sign of a true saint, but he's saying, these things happened to me, Elder Philothus saying, that he was clear, he actually prophesied what monastery he'll go to, etc. He wanted to go to Manathos. He goes, I want to become a monk. And the saint said to him, now go to Paros, I think it was. And he goes, no, I'd like to go to Manathos. He said, okay, go to Manathos. He didn't listen to the saint. He went to um, Manathos, 1906, remember? So he started to go up. As When he went through Thessalonica, which was controlled by the Turks, the Turks captured him and thought he was a spy, I think, if I remember right, and they were going to send him to death. And then by miracle, he escaped, and then he returned and then ended up... Where did he end up? In the, on the island of Paros, which is what St Nectarius prophesied. But didn't force him, said... I think you should go there. He goes, no, I want to go to Manathos. He said, okay. And now Father Philothos goes on. He says it wasn't just the fact that he was clairvoyant and that prophecy, which is a characteristic of saints. However, how did the ever-memorable Nectarius become a saint in the midst of such great number of people, like in the world, hierarchs, priests, monks, monks, laypersons, all these people didn't, didn't become saints. How did he become a saint? The answer is that God gives his sanctifying grace to the pious to those who fear and love him and keep his commandments. There it is. Confirmed by the older Philothos of Arcos, who keep his commandments. That's how we become saints. He does not give to the impious or impious, the proud. God does not give his grace to those who are proud, the unbelieving, to those who disobey his commandments. He gives his sanctifying grace to those who fast, who exercise self-restraint means to struggle against their passions, who are vigilant 
and pray to those who have the virtues of humility, faith and love. All these virtues adorned ever-memorable Nectarius and made him a saint. See the balance? Beautiful. Didn't say, oh, he knew the future. No. Or he, he, um, his writings. No. He said he kept the commandments and he mentioned humi- and humility, faith, love, prayer, etc. Spiritual struggle. Balance. And now, uh, although Elder Philothus has not been glorified by the Church of Greece, he is considered a saint. So many people in Greece consider him a saint, but he has not officially been recognised. He, he, he lived to, I don't know, about mm, old, very old. He died in the 80s, 79, around there, I think. And um, he was the, one of the greatest spiritual fathers of Greece, like many people came to him. Another person, let's see what another person, Archimandrite Amphilochios Macris. Elder Amphilochios Macris was also a spiritual child of Saint Nectarius, and he said, quote, I regarded the Holy Nectarius Met- Metropolitan of Patopolis as a living saint filled with the pure Orthodox spirit. He was a man of prayer and had only one thought to create centres of prayer. He spoke of mental prayer because he cultivated in himself this higher form of prayer. Saint Nectarius had a desire. He wanted to establish monasteries all over Greece. He loved monasticism. He prayed, he even used to do services in the chapel at the school with the students and say, let's all pray so that God can, 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 can give Greece more monasteries. Now, when you see someone who's anti-monastic, then they're anti Orthodox. That means they're enemies of God. And that's what I was saying before. A lot of these theologians today, even some bishops and priests, they are hostile to Orthodox monasticism. When you see those people, run away. That monasticism, St Nectarius and all the fathers say, is the backbone of Orthodoxy. We as humans... We have a backbone, and it's the backbone which keeps us up. If our back, if our, if that backbone, something happens to it, we just flop down. What keeps us upright is our backbone. What keeps orthodoxy upright is monasticism. Without monasticism, there is no orthodoxy. So he was, see, he was doing the commandments. He was merciful. He used to write orthodox writings and sermons he did and things like that. But what else? He did miracles. He had foreknowledge. He had prophecy. He, and he was a man who was um, a proclaimer of orthodox monasticism and prayer. But some of these new theologians that are, produ- that are, that are coming out now don't even talk about prayer. Or if they do, they talk about it in a way which is alien to the orthodox church. Elder Amphilochus is also regarded as a saint in Greece, although he has not been canonised. Greece produced in the last century so many great elders and eldresses. In 1955, Titus published the most comprehensive account of the saint's life called Saint Nectarius Kephala. So this is 1955, 35 years after the death, another biography. This book contains his life, his letters, 
opinions about him by many notable clergy, like I just read some, and laymen, a service in honour of him and a paraclesis to him, written by the foremost contemporary hymnographer of the Orthodox Church, Father Erasmus of Mount Athos. Now, I had the honour to meet um, this person. He is, he uh, was the greatest hymnog hymnographer, I think that's how you say it. He is the one who composed all these, the, the services for the saints in the Greek church. And so he put together, he's the official person. I was so, when I met, like when you saw him, you, if you saw him without knowing who he is, you just say, oh, he's just a little gentle old man there, kind of insignificant. You kind of maybe don't look at him that much because he doesn't sh have any air about him. But, you know, uh, later on I found out who he was. And um, obviously to write this, this, the, the, what we sang tonight, for example, I think he wrote. And the reason why he, he was holy is because he was humble. And that, and that showed. He was such a humble person. He died a few years ago. I don't remember now. Um, I met him in 85, 86. So I don't know when he died. Shortly after that. But he's the one that writes all the official services, uh, most of the official services for the Greek church there. Archimedra Titus, in his book on St. Nectarius Kephalas, emphasises not just the miracles, look what he emphasises, his virtues of humility, meekness, simplicity, self-control, detachment from worldly things, and charity, meaning his almsgiving. In addition to this, he emphasises the saint's spiritual gifts, his gifts as a preacher and a confessor, and those of foreknowledge and work in miracles, that's last. Further, his important contributions to the church as a writer are noted, and is also his powerful, beneficial influence on many notable clergy and educators, and in general, on the people of Greece. We've, we've said all that. He had a great influence, St. Nectarius, on many people. Some of the, the great priests that, that were that came out of that Rosario school was because of the influence of Saint Nectarius. Another miracle, in 1956, the steamship Corinthia came into the harbour of Aegina, at Aegina. One of the crew members was John Criaris. On this occasion, he, his wife Catherine also came so they can make a trip to the convent to venerate the relics of St. Nectarius and thank him for a great miracle. So this man was a crew member who worked on this ship, but he brought his wife with him because they wanted, as, as the ship stops at Aegina, go quickly to the monastery of St. Nectarius to give thanks. His miracle is as follows. A few months earlier, his steamship was off Italian waters when suddenly a crack occurred to the body of the ship. John, knowing they were in danger of sinking, with faith called upon the help of St. Nectarius to help save the ship and the crew. The saint appeared to the ship's captain and calmed him, saying, nothing shall happen to the ship or the crew, for I shall help you. In spite of the bad weather, they put in at the nearest Italian harbour, intact and unharmed, where they had the crack repaired. So even though it was cracked and they should have drowned, they didn't because the saint didn't allow it. With tears, the men were given glory and offering their gratitude to St. Nectarius, who rescued them from drowning. In gratitude to St. Nectarius, for the miracle that he performed, John gave a, a votive gift, like a gift of thanksgiving there, like something, 
of a small golden steamship. So he, he made the, um, a goldsmith to... He paid the money and, and said to the goldsmith, I want you to make me a steamship made out of gold and I'm going to... He paid money for it and I'm going to dedicate that to the monastery. This would have been placed in the special glass cabinet mentioned above. Another miracle. We don't have time. The ecumenical patriarch at Constantinople officially recognised him as a saint on April 20th, 1961, 41 years after he, the, the saint's repose. Why was the saint canonised so quickly? Sometimes saints take 100, 200, 300 years to be canonised. He was canonised quickly because of the following reasons. One, his myrrh-bearing incorrupt relics and later his fragrant bones. That's one of the signs. Two, his countless miracles. That's another sign. Three, his orthodoxy, as can be seen from his many outstanding orthodox publications and sermons. He wrote orthodox. Um, uh, uh, his, 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 uh, his writings were pure orthodox writings, not heresies. He was against heresies. In his, uh, number four, his holy life, his virtues, in other words, orthodox life based on Christ's commandments and his spiritual struggle, prayer life, monasticism, etc. What I've mentioned before, his liturgical life, and his divine gifts. Number five, Orthodox Christians consider him a saint regardless of the fact that he was not officially recognised by the church. Number six, was that five, six, whatever, icons were painted of him as a saint all over Greece. Number seven, his monastery on Aegina became a place of pilgrimage where thousands and thousands of people were coming. Number eight, the services which were composed to the saint. People were doing services to him as if, whether he was canonised or not. The me, number nine, the many publications of his life, in particular the most comprehensive account of the saint's life called Saint Nicholas Kephalos, written in 1955 by Archimedes. As I said, lives, the publications of the lives of saints like that, that helps people to understand more the saint, come close to the saint, pray to the saint, and that helps to um, people to um, have a relationship with the saint and then more miracles occur and people acknowledge the saintliness of the person. And number nine, 10, his fame as a saint spread throughout the Greek Orthodox world and later on, of course, it probably spread to other countries, but most, uh, most of them was done to communism, so especially in the Greek Orthodox world. Again, it must be emphasised that the saints were not canonised solely on the basis of their incorrupt bodies or even their miracles, but because of their holy life. St. Gregory the Theologian says, now let's listen to this, miracles are for unbelieving and not for believers. The marks of saints are their life according to God and their divine conduct. Just in case some of you might say, that priest is really against miracles. And, and what, what, why is he saying that? Well, I'm, I'm not uh, making things up. Miracles are for the unbelieving and not for believers. St. John Christum says the same. He goes, I don't, St. John Christum is saying, don't look too much at miracles. Practice the orthodox life. Do the commandments of Christ. Not emphasis, because too much emphasis on miracles can lead people astray. Because as I said, the devil does miracles too and people get confused. And that's another reason I forgot to mention in the previous, um, I think, no, I mentioned it, of the incorrupt relics. What, that God allowed St. Nectarius to be incorrupt because in the 1920s and 30s, Greece was going through a very difficult time where, where, because of influence from Europe, I mentioned that in the previous talk, 
people were starting to uh, leave the Orthodox faith. And this was like an electric shock to him. It's like, there it is, there is a thing. So it helps unbelievers, not believers. Believers don't need those things. They already have a relationship with Christ. They're already leading spiritual lives. They don't need miraculous icons. And miraculous icons, relics, etc., a lot of these things God allows to uh, bring, to make people like see it and then kind of come back to the church through the uh, miracle, even though on its own that's not too good a lot of times because people sometimes fall back again. So, you know, if they come back to the church from the miracle and start living a spiritual life, that's okay. But if they come back to the church because they're amazed by the miracle, I've had people like that, people that have come to me and said, I saw a miracle and because of that I'm in the church now. And I said, but you've got to live a spiritual life. All excited, the miracle, the miracle, the miracle, and slowly they fell away because they didn't do a spiritual life. So miracles are meant to give a shock to people and say, whoa, look at that, and then to come back to the church and start leading a spiritual life. So miracles are for the unbelieving and not for believers. The marks of, the, of saints, says St. Gregory the theologian, are their life according to God and their divine conduct, their life, their orthodoxy. That's what we should look at, not just these of the miracles. As I've said in, the pre, in previous talks, people that came to the church in the first centuries just because of miracles, a lot of them fell away. Someone found this for me in the, um, the life of um, Father Demetrius Gagastathu, a married priest. In early 1966, the saint has already been canonised, the Saint Nectarius, saint Nectarius the Wonder Worker, Christian Association was founded in an area in Greece called Greece, under the spiritual direction of Father Philosophus, a disciple of Saint Nectarius. So they found this, they made another like a, like a association dedicated to the saint. The association developed strong religious and charitable activities. In addition to having erected a church dedicated to the newly canonised saint, Nectarius, the association was very much involved in missionary work, published the magazine called St Nectarius and ran a boarding school for 20 poor students. Now, why is that all important for? Remember, this is after the canonization. This is the last thing I want to do now. The local bishop, however, fought against the association's religious activity. So the bishop of the area, there's about 800 bishops in Greece, in this area, this particular bishop, he fought against the association's religious activity. He also refused to recognise the Holy Nectarius as a saint. Important. Because even though the church recognised him, this person didn't want to recognise him. Concerning this hostility of the local bishop, Papa Dimitri wrote to the people, Do you see how Satan works to annihilate everything? Such persons who heed him, in other words, such persons who listen to this bishop, will neither see nor hear. In other words, he's trying to say that when people listen to this bishop who's saying the wrong thing, they will um, follow the devil and will neither see the tr hear the truth. So you can't convince them because they don't want to hear the truth. Regarding this, the association, Papa Demetrius said, quote, because they invited him to come up, 
I do not want you to be afraid. Your helper is Saint Nectarius as well as the archangels. They will arrange everything as is fitting. I will serve liturgy and perform the supplication service to the archangels so that they will deliver you from this danger. What danger? The bishop. I beg the most holy Theotokos and the archangels to strike down your enemies, those agents of the devil, so that I may hear, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered and let those who hate him flee from before his face. Well, who's he referring to? The saint, uh, the elder, uh, elder Demetrius is referring to the bishop and those who followed him. He called them agents of the devil. He goes on, you invite me to come up there. I know what I will find and this is why I do not go. When I hear, quote, those who sought the child's life for dead, Matthew 2.20, quoting from the Bible, then I will go. In other words, he's saying when I hear that he's gone, then I'll come. Then he goes on, pray that the old bishop passes away. Perhaps God and St. Nectarius will send you another bishop who will have the fear of God and genuine Christian faith. A priest who had fled from Russia, says Father Demetrius, once told me that the same thing happened there. The people became angry with the bishops and that is why God allowed this calamity, in other words, communism, to happen in Russia because the bishops had gone off. They weren't taking care of the people. They weren't preaching the word of God. They just liked the power. They were very powerful despots. And unfortunately, today, there are many bishops who are hungry for power and look at their position as a way to have that power and glory. However, we see here that Saint, that Father Demetrius is recognised also as a saint, even though he's not canonised, he actually says, pray for him to go. Pray for him to die, to go, so that you can get a, a proper bishop. The reason why I brought that in, one, to show you that not everyone recognised the saint as um, that. There are some old calendarist groups, one in particular, in Greece, fanatical. And they actually uh, uh, don't have, say, they've got the calendar, and then when you come to the 9th of November, there's no, they have little icons of all the saints on the days on their calendar. And you go, 9th of November, Saint Onyssuphoros, I think it is. Okay, how come they haven't got Saint Nectarius? And I made some inquiries. I go, oh, they don't recognise him as a saint. Why? Because they're mad. Very simple. They're crazy. That's what I'm trying to say. What's the point of having orthodoxy if you haven't got orthodox life? They lost themselves, the devil tripped them and said, he's not a saint, that's not a saint, he's not a saint, that's not a church, that's not communion, uh, that's just bread and wine, that's this, that's that, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So that's what happens when we don't have orthodox life together with orthodox faith. Father Demetrius said this about this man who just because he didn't recognise Saint Nectarius. Now, what would he say about those bishops who are praying with Hindus and Jews and Muslims and Catholics and Protestants and women priests and I don't know what else they play with. And um, what would he say then? So, uh, yes, we pray for their enlightenment, but what's that, what, what, what are they to be enlightened with when the canons strictly say you shouldn't do that? So maybe, but maybe that might be an idea. Pray for God to grant true orthodox bishops to the church. And there are good ones, as I said. 
Did that happen with Saint John? There were some bishops that didn't recognise him as a saint. Did that happen? Always, there was always people that like that. They, um, there were some who persecuted him who later on could not believe that he was a saint. But at the end, even though they had control, some of those bishops, against their will, they had to canonise Saint John because the people demanded it. It was done. It was done deal. They couldn't do anything about it. The same with Saint Nectarius. Why would a lot of the bishops who were against him permit for him to be even canonised? Or a lot of them are ecumenists, a lot of them are ecumenists, and Saint Nectarius was anti-incubinism. He spoke a lot against uh, what's going on in the church today, all those type of things. But yet, it's not up to them. Even if, they, if, they, if, the, if a lot of the churches have ecumenists, heretical people, it, they can't do anything. If God wants, he will proclaim his saints. Like Justin Popovich, like, um, he's, uh, 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 he wrote a book about ecumenism, the greatest work, which is like, for an ecumenist, that book is like you get a red-hot sword and thrust it into their heart. That's how much. You know how that hurts? It really hurts. So that's the same with them. They burn with that book, with his works, and even the same ones who are against him, at the end, had to agree to canonise him and become a saint. Saint Nikolai was as well. He was persecuted as well. Uh, let's finish now. That's, um, uh, that's why communism happened. Yep. Why? Uh, what fervent supplication he must be making to God, says Saint Demet Father Demetrius about Saint Nectarius, He's praying on behalf of the, today's world, the saint. Consider, this, consider the conditions Saint Nectarius left the church in and what condition the church is in today, says Father Demetrius, back in the 70s. Or six, when was this? In the 60s. Because the church was, has gone a little bit off in the 1920s when Saint Nectarius was around, before, before he died. But later on in the 60s it became worse with these schisms and ecumenism and things like that. The old bishop was indeed relieved of his duties due to old age. Papa Demetrius wrote, quote, I was glad to learn of it because now those who supported the bishop would disperse. I pray to the archangels, my protectors, to enlighten the new bishop so that he may come to the knowledge of truth and righteousness and that he will approve the godly works that need to be done. I pray that all these difficult situations will be transformed into easy manageable ones through God's blessing. Yes, did you have a question? Yeah, you said about saints and before uh, the canonised people power. Uh, there are, um, people power, that's a good expression, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, when does it become an issue that the people are taking the power in their own hands um, instead of um, following the canons of the church? Look, there was a fellow that they said was a, a saint who was a doctor, they say. Demetrius Lekas or something like that and there was a whole thing about him in Athens that he was a doctor and that he died and that, he did, that miracles were occurring and there was some following of his that he should be a saint etc. What happened? Dissolved. Because when it's not real God does not allow it to occur. You see? Um, God will never allow someone to be canonised a saint who's not an orthodox saint. 
they tried to canonise um, a saint in the past, I can't remember, whatever, and he was a mason or he was mixed up in masonism and that never occurred either. People, don't, people will not recognise that. What, how? Are they gonna, uh, was, is a mason bishop going to do miracles? You see what I mean? So it doesn't, it, it will never occur. Well, the God will um, only allow those who are true saints to be canonised. At once, uh, they had a, they, they, these records of the saints um, that were kept of the miracles. There was one book called, um, that went into 7th edition, Nothing is Incurable for Saint Nectarius. It was authored by the lay theologian Dimitrius Panagopoulos, a very pious man. It lists and describes 221 miracles. Another writer on Manapha states that the miracles exceeded 600 by the end of 1968. At one stage, the uh, periodical Aia Marina, which is published in Athens, had, had given accounts of over 2,000 miracles, most of them miraculous cures, medical cures. It gives dates, places, names, addresses, doctors, hospitals. The number is continually growing because of the enormous number of miracles performed by the saint. He has been called Saint Nectarius the wonder worker because of the fact that he has done so many miracles. Well, obviously God does it through, through, through the saint. But um, I didn't go through a lot of the miracles, didn't get time, but the, the thing there is that they give doctors names, etc. These are miracles that have been recorded that have been also confirmed by um, doctors, etc. It says here, um, uh, the list of St. Nectarius's miracles grow longer every day. His shrine on the island of Aegean has become the most popular place of pilgrimage in Greece. Metropolitan Nectarius attained the same sanctity as the great luminaries and saints of our Orthodox Church. Through the prayers of Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the word of mercy, and save us. Amen. The offspring of In his life, O God bearing Father, send Nectarius to the hill and sanctify all that hasten to thee and kiss thine icon and relics with reverence. 
Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. To them that seek healing of thee with faith, come hasten, O Father, and deliver them from all pain. For thou art a merciful physician, O most revered wonder worker, Nectarius, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Since thou art the birth giver of our God, O most holy maiden, show thy mercy to me, thy slave, and free me from harm and from the malice of the invisible serpent, I beg of thee. O saint of God, interceding our behalf, from all manner of illness and from affliction of soul, and from all satanic assaults, deliver us, saint of God, for thou art known to be our most compassionate shepherd, who dost ever stand in God over thy faithful flock. O saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Thou art truly a flowing spring of divine gifts for us, gushing forth with spiritual nectar, which doth dispel the grief and grievous bitterness of all our failings and passions, and doth grant the sweetness of grace, O beloved of God. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. In much suffering and sorrow, in anguish and misery, have I passed my life, O most blessed one. Hence do I plead to thee. Disdain me not, I pray, but do thou visit thy servant, and do thou deliver and save me, we cry to thee, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. O Immaculate Maiden, thou art a firm battlement, and a peaceful haven and shelter for all that flee to thee. Do thou, O full of grace, entreat thy Son for thy servants, that we be preserved from the snares of the enemy. Preserve thy flock from all affliction, temptation, and every sorrow, for we hasten unto thy aid and do honor thee. O Saint Nectarius, thou rivet wonder worker, in thy good will look thou on me, O him Theotokos, and do thou behold my body's grievous infirmity, and heal thou the cause of my soul sorrow. A fountain of grace and miracles, O righteous one, Art thou shown to be by virtue of thy sanctity? Thy relics are a constant wellspring of healing of every infirmity of both the body and soul. Almost hallowed Father Nectarius, a friend of God. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Do thou guard and preserve thy flock from the spiteful hate of the cruel enemy. By the grace of God bestowed on thee, show thy mercy and thy loving care for us. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Thou dost heal all that run to thee, seeking for thine aid and comfort in all distress. For since thou art one compassionate, thou dost ever hearken to our prayers to thee. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. To the faithful that turn to thee, and extol and bless thee, O Saint Nectarius, to the grant unto them strength and health, of both soul and body, O most blessed of God, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Lead me forth, O blameless one, from the path of evil and all iniquity, 
Guide me to the land of righteousness, granting me forgiveness and eternal life. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Egina hath found thee to be a fervent guardian, and for this cause I shift thee unto thee, and is delivered from affliction and necessity. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Shelter us from harm and the malice of the enemy, since thou hast borne us with the Lord our God, and hast received the gift of grace of Saint Nectarius. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, though thou hast reposed, yet thou livest to eternity. And though thy body is a source of grace, thus clearly showing forth thy Saviour's victory over death, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Holy, undefiled, and most chaste, and free from every sin, art thou in very truth the hope you won. Therefore the faithful seek thy present intercessions made. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Relieve thou the pains of both the soul and flesh by thy praise, O Saint Nectarius, our Father, for them that flee to thy mighty protection. O fill their hearts with rejoicing, O Blessed One, and do thou dissipate the gloom of their sorrow and grief, O thy friend of God. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Entreat thou the loving Saviour of our souls to deliver us from every temptation and from the snares of the man-hating devil, that we be cleansed of our every iniquity. For thou hast borne us with the Lord, O most blessed one of God, Saint Nectarius. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. From on high, thou keepest watchful vigilance, and dost guard thy flock with loving compassion. Preserve us all in the faith of God's error, and do thou save us from error and heresy. That by thy praise, O righteous one, we may grow both in wisdom and godliness, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Since thou art the mother of the living God, our Redeemer and compassionate Saviour, O maid of God, keep thy servants from danger, and from the passions and tyrannous bonds of sin, and grant thou strength unto our souls to withstand the attacks of the evil one. Preserve thy flock from all affliction, temptation, and every sorrow, for we hasten unto thine aid and do honour thee. O Saint Nectarius, a rigid wonder-worker, O spotless one, who inexpressibly in the last days despite a word, bring forth the word, do thou make request of him, as one who hath motherly boldness. Now in truth art the lifter up of them that are fallen down, and a helper of all in distress, O most blessed one, as one glorified by the Lord God in these latter times, do thou shelter us from harm and all the temptations of this life, for we cry to thee fervently, pray God for our forgiveness, for mercy and our soul salvation, for thou dost ever protect O Saint Nectarius, them that call on thee. E 
Shining like a newborn star, bright with divine grace and virtue, in the church's firmament, fill us with the light of saintless nectarius. By the Spirit's radiance and thy godly manner, thou enlightenest thy faithful flock, cleansing and purging us of satanic darkness and sinfulness. Drive far from us the gloom and night of the many passions that plague our souls, and by the effulgence and brilliance of thy life, O righteous one, God and direct our whole life in peace, freeing us from every harm. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf from all manner of illness, from temptations and perils, and from calamities, from evil and all malice, from them that seek to harm us, do thou keep and preserve us all. Who cried to thee, Father, blessed art thou, O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. A clear wellspring of healing and a fountain of miracles, O Nectarius, art thou, O righteous Father, for them that run with fervor to the shrine of the relic saint, and faithfully cry out, blessed art thou. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Thou art truly the glory, and the boast of the faithful, O Saint Nectarius. We turn to thee, O Father, and ask thine intercessions, and cry unto thee fervently. Entreat Christ our Saviour, that we be saved, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Do thou guide us, O Maiden, in the path of the truth of him that was born of thee. Comfort us of all error and evil inclinations, for we cry to thee earnestly, beseech the Redeemer that we be saved. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf, dry up the fountains of sin that flood my heart and soul, by thine intercessions with the Lord God. Cleanse me of all stain by thine entreaties, O Father. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf, as a physician of both the body and the soul, grant us thy plentiful and balsam, as a sacred antidote to heal the serpent's poison. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Shelter thy servants, O blessed Harak of the Lord, grant us peace and wisdom, O Father. Guard us by thy precepts and thy sacred admonitions, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Rescue, O maiden, my sick and much afflicted soul, stricken with the plague of the passions. Lead me from the bonds of sin into the land of promise. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. Deliver us from evil and the devil's malice, and from all error and sin, O beloved one of God, and though we all be unworthy, spur not our prayer, O Saint. O Saint of God, intercede in our behalf. From pain of soul and body, deliver us, O servants, and grant us wisdom and patience in trials, we pray. And as a priest of the Lord God, us that we all be saved. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Entreat the loving Saviour in thy tender mercy, 
For every pious and orthodox Christian we pray that we be granted forgiveness, grace and eternal life, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. We praise thee, O pure maiden, as a God's breath giver, for thou dost ever pour forth flowing streams of God's grace, and in thy love as his mother, shelter us by thy breath. It is truly me to call thee blessed, Theodorus, the ever-blessed and all immaculate, and mother of the God, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, thee who without corruption gave us back to God the word, the very Theodokos, thee do we magnify. Let us praise and honor the radiant star, the far-shining beacon, the great light of the Church of Christ, the comfort of the faithful, the godly wonder-worker, the joy of the whole world, the holy nectarious. Rejoice, our mighty river of grace and life, flowing with the nectar of divine knowledge most profound, teaching and instructing us in word and deed and writing and setting forth the doctrines of the true faith of Christ. Thou didst shine forth brilliantly on the world from the mount of virtue, like a lamp lighted by the Lord, for thou dost enlighten the minds of the faithful and guide us them, O Father, by the last purity. Rejoice, divine physician of those in pain, rejoice, our sacred healer of the demonized and infirm. Rejoice, our true befriender of the grieved and the afflicted. Rejoice, our defender, blessed nectarius. By thy Christ-like meekness, O righteous one, by thy prayerful vigils, by thy fastings and many tears, Thou didst prove to be a sacred vessel of the Spirit, abounding in the graces of wondrous miracles. Rejoice thou who are dead in this joy and boast, rejoice thou cause of gladness, for the choirs of angelic hosts. Rejoice thou exhortation of all of the just creations, rejoice thou jubilation of the whole race of man. Oh, oh, ye are raised of angelicals with the holy Baptists, the apostles of numbered band, all the saints together as well as God's forgiver, pray making intercession for our deliverance. Please. 